0: Conspiracy 2 and the Evolving Vintage metagame on episode 56 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 56 of So Many Insane Plays, our review of Conspiracy 2 and a look at the Evolving Vintage metagame heading into the 2016 Vintage Championship, including the recent results from the Manadrain Open 17. I'm Kevin Crohn with Steven Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at somanyinsaneplayspodcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGcast, or themanadrain.com. We have a handful of announcements this episode. One fun one is that we, since our last show, we recently learned of the announcement of Eternal Weekend 2017, which was which caught everyone by surprise.
1: But yeah, they, Wizard, waited, they waited to the 11th hour to, to name it this year, right? And then and now they're giving us more than a year's advance notice this time. So,
0: which suggests <laughs> to me that uh, somehow Card Titan and/or Wizards got a deal on the Columbus Convention Center, <laughs> because. Really? I, I don't know. It's I thought the, they
1: just wanted to get it penciled in, but you may be Well, right. e- either way, either way.
0: Um, but anyway, uh, particulars are North American Eternal Weekend, September twenty-three through twenty-four, which must be leaving out one day this side of the other. That's but, a
1: departure. That's a departure from the past couple of years where this event has been in October, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it's been October the last couple of years. Yeah. Wow. I think I think moving it moving closer closer to September is an improvement. It means that you're going to avoid a lot of the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, Halloween holidays, but it also means that it's closer to to the traditional time of August, where the Vintage Championship has historically been held at Gen Con.
0: Yeah. Well, you're right about all those things. I, I want to call attention to the fact that it's only listed as two days here, which I take to be possibly a typo, because this year, 2016's Eternal Weekend is four days. Interesting. <laughs> and so even if they collapsed it by one, I can't imagine they're going back to the form of trying to do all of one tournament on one day and all of the other one on the other day. Uh, we'll see. Maybe we're in for a surprise.
1: What are the, which, which are the two dates that were listed?
0: Would September twenty three and twenty
1: four? That's Saturday and Sunday. So my yeah. guess is, my guess is they'll probably continue to, to bookend it, or not. They don't bookend it actually, right? They make Thursday and Friday part of the event. That's what it year? is this year. Yeah,
0: but that's a departure too. I mean, that's this year is a change, right? Right, from, right. From, because from, three, oh, from two to course, three days. Of course,
1: because because they're moving the top eight this year to Sunday right. for both events. Right. So the Vintage Championship is actually going to be held on Friday. On Friday. I yeah. forgot about that. I'm glad we reminded our audience. <laughs> well, and
0: also, <laughs> according, and according to Car Titan, the door doors open on Thursday this weekend. So they're going to be running events on Thursday, champs on Friday, Saturday, top eights on Sunday. So it's a four-day weekend. This announcement for 2017 lists only Saturday and Sunday. I'm, I'm guessing that's... An oversimplification.
1: Eagle, eagle, eagle-eyed Kevin. I'm yeah. sure most people haven't really.
0: <laughs> we'll see. It's, it's too yeah. early to, to be worried the, about it. We'll see.
1: The big news is that both there's going to be another Eternal Weekend next year, and perhaps just as importantly, it's going to be in Columbus again. Mm-hmm. So the, so they're going to ho- they've already decided and slated to hold this thing in Columbus without even having tried it yet. <laughs> so, it's a yeah. little bit of a roll of the dice. I'm I for one am greatly excited about this. I know you are too because it's more convenient for you, but certainly Columbus is a home base for me despite the fact that I currently reside in California, but always happy to return. Right.
0: Well, and this does one other thing, too, and that is it puts distance between the North American Eternal Weekend and the European Eternal Weekend, which this year are happening almost concurrently, <laughs> but next year, the as they announced, the Eternal Weekend in Europe is in March, uh, the 31st that, that's through a good April point. 2nd.
1: Yeah. So, so this year, it, this tournament was announced, was, was this year's Eternal Weekend announced as North American Eternal Weekend? Yes. this year's because okay. they and announced
0: they announced the European one this year also simultaneously yeah. right
1: yeah and so they're re- they're repeating that as well despite a lot of the <laughs> perhaps less than warmly receptive feedback
0: yeah so I'm not sure how much of that feedback made it into this decision because we know these kind of things need to be scheduled pretty far in advance but either way that's good news for those European players who might be interested in traveling to both events.
1: Oh because or, they have enough to... or, or bad right. news in the sense that Well
0: it, <laughs> No, I mean there there I, I know there were a couple of globe trotters who were lamenting the fact that this year the events are consecutive weekends, which exactly. makes the travel very difficult. That's so that problem is alleviated next year. So hopefully there'll be a little more overlap between the events. It's still a lot to ask, but you know, blunk can hope.
1: And when is, the, when is the European Eternal Weekend, 2017? March.
0: March 31 nice. through April 2, so right at the end of March.
1: Yeah, that's an important announcement. So yeah. they're basically placing these events six months apart. Yeah. So I think that's a big lure for Americans who might want to take a trip to Europe. And where is that going to be in Europe? Paris. Well, who wants to go to Paris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> worth noting to this event is that that european event is announced for three days so I, more fuel to the fire that the american announcement is just preliminary anti. yeah
1: yeah <clears throat> well in anyway. at any rate we are coming close to the eternal weekend 2016 i mean we're almost up on it right i mean we are now just just two months away
0: that's right and we will certainly have a, a big blowout prep show uh, before that event after this episode
1: we are on the road to Eternal Weekend or that's the Vintage right. Championship.
0: That's right, and we're going to have some information in this show, which which uh, is preliminary or precursor to that. In fact, that's kind of what this show is. This is the setup show for the the Vintage, you know, the Vintage Championship show, because we're reviewing a conspiracy and we're talking about the current metagame state and the Managerian Open is going to be a big indicator for people in the metagame. So we got to move on with announcements, though. Steve, tell us about the third edition of your Gush book.
1: <laughs> well, I've been teasing this for, I don't know, years now. I really started working on it, this version, in 2012. The, the big news is that the book is out, and it came out at the very beginning of July. And for folks who don't know the full story, when Gush was unrestricted in 2010, I began working on a book on it, and a, a comprehensive look at Gush decks, Gush strategies, Gush tactics, how you put it all together, how you play them, tips and tactics, sideboarding, everything. And we released that with Quiet Speculation Press in, I want to say, December of 2010. And then I released, it was 100 pages, and I released a second edition of the book a couple months later at 150 pages that was updated and expanded. And I haven't produced a version of it since then. So this is the first edition of this book to have been released in that period, really over five years. and it is completely rewritten from top to bottom. Uh, it is now 360 pages about and it's got a lot more chapters. Obviously, it's you know almost three times as large. So I've got some really cool content in here. I'm really proud of it. It was a tremendous effort. But I'm so glad to have gotten it out. And one of the cool things I think it's enticing about it is there's a a gush hall of fame in the book. so it's got the greatest gush the gush decks of all time, including the stories about them, what they did, what they accomplished, when they were prominent. It's also got a, a chapter that has you know the most prominent gush decks of today. and it's got really an, an enormous my my I would say, most precise, most careful, most exhaustive, most comprehensive, not only analysis of how to play Gush as a card, when to play it, how to play it, how to sequence it, when to time it across the turn sequence and turn structure, but also an incredibly exhaustive appendix on doomsday piles. So years ago in 2011, when Laboratory Maniac was printed, I had built a Gush deck and did pretty well at the Waterbury, the Menadrain Open, um, at the time, made, making top eight, and I published a, an article, on how to build, how to build gush uh, doomsday piles in vintage, and you know I hadn't really revisited that top topic since then. And this is much more detailed in that, in the sense that it has diagrams for how to think about how various cards interact with gush, and then really an exhaustive, comprehensive presentation of of scenarios with all the variables canvassed, like cards in hand, mana available, life available um so it's it this book what's different about this book is that it is designed to be read from start to finish but it's also designed to be sort of a resource you return to so i really want people to interact with the book i want people to make notes bookmark pages i have tables at the end of every chapter summary tables so that people can you know don't have to go back and reread the whole chapter but can have that information um, summarized and condensed and so it'll just help you jog your memory. Um anyway it's it's I'm very proud of it but I don't want to you know I don't want to keep if if you're interested in detailed vintage discussion and analysis and, and and not just gush but the if you really are passionate about the format I encourage you to check it out and it's we'll provide the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. It's
0: quite good I can attest. And speaking of books coming out of Eternal Central, <laughs> I just recently learned that Jaco has put together a nice uh, well, it's a nice double tournament report article in which he provides tournament reports for the NYSE Open and then another nightwear tournament. But then he announces that he's publishing a, an Eldrazi book. What do you know about that?
1: Yeah, so it it's a quite the marketing lure. He's got a uh, a really impressive and amazing double tournament report, including his top eight at the at the um, NYSE. I think you for... mean top ten. I'm sorry. Oh, right. <laughs> in my mind, he should have been in the top eight. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> yes, he, that's right. He drew himself into 10th place and he has a great tournament report there and it's completely free. But the very, very end of the report, he has this uh, kind of uh, innocent you know, announcement that he's, well, he's written a book and the book is over 100 pages and it is called Building and Playing Vintage Eldrazi. It's it's, it's, I have a copy of it. It's really great stuff. He goes through, you know, a lot of vintage players like myself aren't really familiar with what Eldrazi did in other formats. So he gives you a full historical context. Then he talks about every card, how to use it, the the, the four, full set of options and panoply of deck building approaches for Eldrazi. And he's got a lot of really excellent guidance. And it's, it's over, it's almost 120 pages. It's, it's a really... Um, well-written, and really useful useful book, and I frankly love the fact that there's more and more vintage content of, of this kind out there, so if you check out my Gush book, be sure to check out the uh, the Jaco Drazi book as well. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I, I just recently, as in the last 48 hours, learned that this is a thing, and I'm pretty interested in it. I haven't, I haven't laid eyes on it myself, but, but I mean, this deck, we, we gushed about it before, so no pun intended. Yep. <laughs> uh, the uh, I I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is going to be one of the more noteworthy decks to come out of Vintage for a while, and especially in 2016, right? I mean, this uh, is this is a milestone yeah, archetype
1: from from multiple reasons, but yeah. but the fact that it's it's a truly optimally unpowered Vintage deck that compete can compete at the highest levels is virtually, I think maybe totally unprecedented in this format going back to the earliest days of type one and before when it was just constructed magic um yeah it's true this is this is an amazing now the the deck has had its ups and downs has performed very well In, in fact i believe it did it one of the the major vintage tournaments between the NYSE Open and the Water Bear, I believe it was the Eternal Extravaganza, which was very entertaining. I mean, it was like 100 players. Mm-hmm. This deck made top four in the hands of a, of a fin- uh, former Vintage World Champion, um, Mark Horner. Mark, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this is a deck that's definitely capable of competing at the very highest levels. And the in the book, I think, gives you you know insight into how you might approach a lot of situations. And I think there's more tools coming out for these kinds of decks. Um. Yeah. So. So it's not only is it a very cool deck, you know, it's it's a beatdown deck that's very unique, but it's also um, historically significant and and anomalous. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I encourage people to to check it out, especially if you're one of our listeners who is possibly new to vintage, possibly on a budget. Or if you know people who are, like, if you, okay, so maybe you're not one of those players. Maybe you're one of our stalwart players who's been around for ages. But you have friends that you'd like to get into the format. And now you can loan them something other than Dredge. That's so...
1: right that you have multiple <laughs> options and these are these are deck building options for sanctioned events mm-hmm. where you can compete so if you are even considering competing in any of the eternal weekend events that we just talked about this is a perfectly viable choice not to mention these these tournament organizers are giving away prizes to people who show up and do well with unpowered decks so there's an additional incentive you can win real prizes and I, I don't want to sort of keep selling the book for Jaco but it's I think it's only <laughs> like four it's only like four or five dollars for over a hundred pages of content. Really well written, exceptionally edited, you know, lots of visuals and, and, and great notes, footnotes, resources, links. He's got like two pages of, of links to external articles on, you know, Eldrazi in you know, all over the Internet in other formats, modern and beyond. So it's really great. And legacy, too.
0: So speaking of places where you can play Jake Eldrazi... Steve, you've got some UDO events coming up. You want to talk about those?
1: Yeah, for those of you in the Northern California, Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose area, show co- show up to um, Berkeley Eudaimonia, UDO Games is having a couple of upcoming Eternal events. We've got a vintage event in September. I believe it's it's September 18th. Uh, And then there's going to be another Vintage event, which is already on the calendar, I believe, for November. And then for those of you who are really interested in old school magic, there's an event scheduled for October 9th. So that'll be just a few weeks before Eternal Weekend, where, of course, Eternal Central will be hosting a a massive old school tournament. Um, So Vintage in, in September in Eudaimonia and Old School in October. Uh, if you're in the area, show up. Uh, the proxies are allowed in the Vintage event. Of course, Old School is a little bit more restrictive, but we still allow things like inter- in International Edition, Collector's Edition, Revised, Chronicles, all that good stuff.
0: And in my neck of the woods, we've got a couple of Team Serious Opens coming up. There's been a lot of Team Serious tournaments lately. On September 10 in Columbus, Ohio at Comic Town, there's an event. That's a full proxy event, and on 10:15 October 15, just a scant two weeks before Eternal Weekend in Sandusky, Ohio, at pop the pop shop.
1: I love that shop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah,
0: two two more <laughs> events. two tune-ups, tune-up yeah. events right there. Right, I was gonna say right right before Eternal Weekend that that 10:15 event is gonna be a fun one. I I really hope I get to go. So come out and play if you're in the Midwest.
1: Lots, it, it, lots of events right before Eternal Weekend, and appropriately so.
0: Yeah, and we also want to remind our Magic Online players that there's the the monthly Power Nine Open event, the last Saturday of the month coming up. In this case, the last Saturday of the month is the 27th, so just over a week from the, as the, the, the date of this recording.
1: Yes. Yeah, if you are, you know, more of an online player, it's it's a great prize pool. They gave away pa- a piece of Power Nine to the top eight um, online. So, you know, register. It's twenty five tickets to get in, and it's a really great way to play. St- I'll say stiff competition. It's truly stiff competition online yeah. because you've got people from Japan, Europe, Canada, United States. And we need and, somebody
0: to take Ryan down, man.
1: Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got to be stopped. <laughs>
0: and steve you've got a, another article that went on, on vintage magic yes
1: well i've been i've been publishing this series that's it's a it's a great deal of fun on old school magic and i started you know earlier this year and most of these articles have been outlined and drafted years ago but um, we've been rolling them out and and some of them have gotten really great attention um, i really appreciate the interest uh, the second one was about a com- comprehensive history of the deck by brian weissman the most recent one was looking at what sets to include for your community of interest in Old School, and and I've got more more in the pipe the pipeline. But uh, be sure to check out the most recent one, which was which was released at the beginning of this month.
0: All right, so a lot of announcements for this episode, but let's move on to the meat and potatoes. We're going to talk about the metagame. We're going to talk about the manager and open, but let's start with a bit of conspiracy. Now, since Conspiracy's timing is offset from regular set releases, we're not going to do a report card on our prior set review, Eldritch Moon, at this time. So, we don't have our normal report card going in for this timing issue. But, we are going to do most of the things we normally do for a set review, and we'll start by talking about the mechanics of Conspiracy 2. Now, there's not much... Okay, there is a little well, why don't, bit
1: don't we start why don't we start by talking about what conspiracy is <laughs> and and recapping the first one? Well, that's perfectly fine.
0: A conspiracy is a set focused on drafting. And it's focused on drafting in a couple of ways. It's a uh, designed to create cards that are specifically for the draft environment. So, cards where for lack of a better term draft matters it has mechanics that you can use while you're drafting cards reveal them they do certain things you make notes about what you've drafted and it also includes some things that just don't exist in regular constructed magic basically namely the conspiracy cards which are cards that you don't cast or play but they sit aside and affect the game somehow right and so all of that was in conspiracy one and that set was intended to be drafted and then played in multiplayer pods, so it also has a little bit of a multiplayer emphasis. So it's
1: doing it's doing a lot of things. Certainly does. It's, it's not yeah. a simple
0: set. It's one of the, it's one of their most complex
1: products. Cr- and critically, um, it is eternal but, legal, which led to a basically doubling of the vintage ban uh, list. Well, right? yeah, that's true.
0: All the conspiracy cards immediately got
1: banned in all the eternal formats, and. All all the, conspiracies. Yes,
0: the conspiracy When not I say conspiracy the, cards, yeah. I mean that card type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Right. Uh, but no, the, the rest of the cards that weren't conspiracies were far from banned. In fact, the last set gave us Dak Faden, which was a huge splash in Vintage.
1: Well, you know. in the, exactly. In the first set, there were 65 new cards. So part of the set is reprint, but um, 52 of those cards were legal in Legacy and Vintage, while the 13 conspiracies were not. Um, there were 210 cards in the first Conspiracy set. And as you just said, like, the biggest printing was Dak Faden. I mean, Dak Faden was an incredible printing, right? I mean, it's one of the most important cards in in the format. exactly. And
0: this set may not have a card that's as ubiquitous as Dak Faden, but it certainly has some contenders for, for splashes, even in Vintage. But let's talk about the mechanics, right? So we've already talked about draft matters. That, they continue that theme in this set. There's cards that you reveal them when you draft, and they do special things. They, they make a note while you're drafting, and then when you play the card in games, it refers to that note. It's, it's cool. It's complex. It's fun. Yeah. It also changes the mechanics and valuation of cards while you draft, because there are certain cards that refer to how how many cards you've drafted before after them in the draft. So their value goes up and down as you get deeper in a pack, that kind of thing. It's really cool and and cube players i think will continue to enjoy it like they did conspiracy one another thing that's continued from the first set is the concept of voting in the first conspiracy they introduced a handful of cards uh, will of the council was the the key not not keyword but uh i forget i forget what the word is for it um ability word and it just involved all players in a game voting you would usually have two choices a and b and however got whichever one got more votes would be the winner and that effect would happen. This set has a variation on that called Council's Dilemma, which is also voting, but instead of A or B happening, you get some quantity of A and B based on how many votes they both get. So you get a mixture instead of a binary. There are also two new somewhat combat related abilities, Goad and Melee. Goad is kind of like Provoke, it says a goaded creature has to attack, but it has to attack a player other than you if it can. Hmm. So it's a, a multiplayer flavor of provoke of a sort. And then there's melee, which is a power and toughness ability. It says that,
1: that's an old ability, right? An older, at least, right? Or is that new? No, is go, melee a...
0: melee is new. It's a new variation. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it says whenever this creature attacks, it gets plus one, plus one until the end of turn for each opponent you attacked with a creature this combat. Another multiplayer-focused ability, such that your creature can get plus two, plus two if you attack two opponents, and plus three, etc. So it's designed to promote attacks in multiplayer games. But possibly, in my eyes, the most interesting new mechanic in Conspiracy 2 is this concept of being the monarch. And monarch, it's kind of like an emblem. It's a sort of a, well, it's a title that you guess. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an effect that stays with you. So they pr- printed a new emblem-like card that says, The Monarch. And it says, and I quote, At the beginning, your end step, draw a card. <laughs> Whenever a creature deals combat damage to you, its controller becomes the monarch. So it's this it's this extra card drawing thing that happens at the beginning, your end step, and uh, is designed to be a desirable thing that, that causes people to be attacking and blocking. Uh, I'm sorry, attacking each other with their creatures and stealing the monarch. How, how is this How is this uh,
1: mechanic implemented? Well,
0: there are cards, a number of them throughout the set, that say when this comes into play or when you play this, you become the monarch. There uh, there can only be one monarch in a game. So someone becomes the monarch and, and, it, it, and that's the first one, the, the, the emblem gets created. Then it can be stolen because of the nature of the emblem. It says whenever a creature deals combat damage to you, its controller becomes the monarch. So there's inherent stealing of the monarchy. But then there's other cards that just make you the monarch, which is also a form of creating or stealing it. So in a vintage context, I mean, in a one on one game, So this card says at the beginning of your end step, draw a card. So if you could become the Monarch in a Vintage game, you would draw a card at the end of your turn. But then it says if your opponent deals damage to you, they become the Monarch. So I don't think that any of the cards that make you the Monarch in Conspiracy that we've seen so far are Vintage playable. Because the
1: risk risk is just too great. Well, also, (laughs) I
0: think a lot of these cards are 5-mana, right? It's designed for limited and multiplayer games, and... And it's just not, there's nothing really efficient that does it. They don't want people going turn one yeah. on the Monarch, draw an extra card, go, right? <laughs> they don't want like kind of like a free additional Howling Mine that fast. So they've they've balanced the effect to make it a little slower for multiplayer games. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you could play it on turn one, then you would just be drawing like, a you know, a ton of cards. You could just prevent your opponent from ever attacking.
0: Right, it would be, it, yeah, it would have a landslide kind of effect. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of the mechanics. I reached out on Twitter and asked for some of our audience to provide some cards that they were excited about. So don't about. complain if we, so don't, we don't. Yeah, full, don't complain yeah. if we don't
1: review what <laughs> what you haven't suggested. <laughs> well,
0: we don't have absolutely all of the spoiler yet, so we may have to do a bit of a follow-up for this in our next episode. But we do have a half dozen really interesting cards. I mean, there's enough meat here to tie us over, that's for sure. So without further ado, let's talk about one Sanctum Prelate. Now I'm not sure if that's Prelate or Prelate. according uh, according to google it looks like prelate so i'm gonna go with prelate and the sanctum prelate is one white white creature human cleric as sanctum prelate enters the battlefield choose a number non-creature spells with converted mana cost equal to the chosen number can't be cast two two so this is clearly the intersection of Meddling Mage and Chalice of the Void. <laughs> you make the choice as it enters the battlefield, so it can't be responded to. Once the choice is made, mean it can't be responded to. And unlike Chalice of the Void, the spell can't even be cast. Not Instead of countered when it's cast, it can't even be announced. But it is yep. also only non-creature spells. So this plays into the you know the long-standing tradition of white creatures hosing, hosing everything that aren't creatures.
1: It's a human. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Humans hate has reached new levels. This this card is bananas. It's really... It's, <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable.
0: So let's talk about some of our usual metrics, right? One WW.
1: There are four mana white spells, but... but am hard the, for us to think of a card, the, casting, a card There are three casting... There are three casting... But there must be... Yeah, yeah I was going
0: to say it, but... And but there, there are three are even mana more white,
1: white creatures spells. that... Yeah. Or creatures that are... Certainly three mana white creatures that see play, starting with, of course, Monastery yeah. Mentor. <laughs> and also the,
0: the latest Thalia. And the human the 5-Clear Humans decks have cast things that are harder to cast than this, like a Mantis Rider, for example. So the, the, yeah. I think the, the most noteworthy thing about the mana cost is that if this had a single designated white, if it was 2W, I think it would be an obvious inclusion for white Eldrazi. With double white, I feel like that's stretching that deck's mana. Interesting. Not that it's impossible, but I think that this this would be difficult to cast reliably on turn three in a White Eldrazi deck that had Wastelands. Now, I've heard discussions in the past about variations of White Eldrazi that could be built without Wastelands, or a reduced number of them. And I don't know if this card makes that worth it or not. I don't know if that's a a worthwhile trade-off. But I do think that the white white really does put a damper on inclusion in that particular deck. But all the other humans. Cavern-based decks should not have any problem casting this, especially if they're the five-color sort that are running Noble Hierarchs. I mean, this is a turn two play pretty reliably.
1: Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I mean, um, let's let's begin with the the kind of approach you would take in using this card, not necessarily what deck you'd play it in, but the matchups, mm-hmm. how you would use this across the range of familiar vintage matchups. Let's start okay. there.
0: So you're saying for each matchup, what do you think the cards are you want to shut off? Yeah,
1: exactly. Of, of sort, right?
0: Okay, so let's pick one of the most popular decks right now. Let's pick uh, yeah. Rix's Pyromancer. You know, the Pyromancer Gush deck. So you're you're some kind of heavy humans creature deck, and you go up against this Pyromancer deck. Now, most of the Gush decks are Gush and Force of Will decks. So cutting off five cuts off a hundred
1: count. And, and is likely impact. totally asymmetrical. I mean, you're not likely to play any five color. Yes. Five color, five mana yeah, spells. I agree. So. Let's also not
0: forget though that this says non-creature. So, if you're one of those five color human style decks, most of your spells are immune to whatever number you choose. You could choose two, even though your deck has 22 drops in it, just to cut them off of Young Pyromancer.
1: No, because those are creatures. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. So, you can't cut them off of Young Pyromancer and Strix. So, okay, that narrows your options considerably then. Then your options are almost entirely uh, zero, one, and and five. (laughs) Right? And zero is not very good.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, there there's also 8, but I uh for for treasure cruise and uh if, if and for some
0: reason you knew their hand and they had cruiser dig in it, I could see naming 8, but probably not in the blind.
1: Yeah. So I think the the critical question is, from my perspective, do you try and hit t- to tack off removal by naming like one to prevent bolt and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Or do you try and you can't hit stuff out that way, but or do you try and hit the draw engine and counter magic? Because if you, you mm-hmm. hit, like, one, you can take out Flesher Storm and Well, Flesher Storm's not very useful against humans. But but certainly five, hitting Gush and Force of Will is huge. Uh, you know, it essentially has a Gaddock-Teague-like yeah. function in that yeah, yeah. it actually does. It's a, good, so, it's a good
0: comparison. One is a
1: very powerful engine card for those Pyromancer Gush decks. Right? Yeah, it you know, stops it the, stops the Cataxian Probe, Preordain, probe, Bolt. Sna- uh, co- exactly, Cabal Therapy. Yeah. So probe, I think if you're
0: going just for, I don't know, the size of
1: impact, you would choose one, right?
0: A number yeah. of cards to be impacted, you would choose one. I can envision a scenario. You're right, where you would choose five because the the situation called for it. But I will also point out that cavern nearly invalidates force of will. So if you've got cavern online, then you're really only hitting gush by naming five. At which point, I would be heavily inclined to name one because it hits such a large. Slot. Yep. Yeah. Let's let's talk about another matchup.
1: now. Interesting. Okay. Well, 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 let me ask a couple more questions on this one because this uh, this is such these gush decks are such an important matchup. I think for our audience thinking about how to use these cards and how they would play out, I think it's important for us to assess, you know, the circumstances in which you would name different kinds sets of cards or not. To me, one critical question is the kinds of cards you'd surround this card with. So if you're putting it into a typical human's deck, mm-hmm. and I think it really depends on I think what you have in hand or what you also have in play is going to dramatically influence what which card you name. So for example, if you have in play a Spirit of the Labyrinth, that makes Gush much less important. And if you have a Cavern, mm-hmm. that makes Force le- much less important. So I would probably yeah. be inclined to try and name something that would make removal, you know, harder to play and let alone harder to find. On the other okay. hand, if you have something like, um, a, ca- a can- uh, for whatever reasons, I can never remember this card's name, even though I use it all the time, mm-hmm. Ether Sworn Cannonist in play. <laughs> you if you have Aether Sworn Cannonist in play, then the cantrip engine may be less important, like worrying about probe and... Preordain may be less important in some sense than just hitting force of will so yeah. i think what you have in play or around it or what you're planning to play may significantly influence what you name so i think this is going to be a very skill intensive card not a necessarily a very obvious card
0: yeah and when you were talking just now about pairings the first thing i thought of was thalia thalia the original 2 mana thalia puts a lot of pressure on decks in the environment it has been for a while to oh, pl- play cheaper <laughs> removal, right? That's why yeah. and Plow are so standard these days and then why Snuff Out is played in those Pyromancer decks. So if you had turn one Thalia
1: <laughs> and turn two... God, that's sick. Pellets, that's really sick. Then you're, then you're really incentivized to name cheaper
0: spells, right? right? right. You're really incentivized to name one. Because now your opponent is yet another further turn behind.
1: But but force of will is also one of the cheapest spells, even though it sits at five. <laughs> well, yeah.
0: So I mean, of course, if your hand is susceptible to force, I would totally agree with you. I would say I'm already stuck in the mindset of this being a cavern Wait. deck, and you're going to have cavern a lot of the yeah. time.
1: In yeah. which case, so, yeah. But
0: you're right. I mean, if, if your hand is susceptible to force, if you've got maybe maybe it's mana heavy, maybe you kept a three lander and you and you draw a fourth land on turn two, so your threats. You know, it's more important that your threats resolve that kind yeah. of thing. <clears throat> and your point, your points about spirit the Labyrinth are well made. I mean, that that does totally influence. <laughs> cards are important for your opponent. I mean, the... it's, it's also worth go ahead. no, go ahead. It's just it, it's also worth noting that we picked a, a you know for initial matchup where there's not very much variety in mana costs. The Pyromancer Gush decks. I mean, there's they have they have creatures at two, but you can't cut those off. Yeah.
1: Well. I, I brought yeah, I broadened it to gush decks. I mean, whether you're playing pyromancer mentor, pyromentor, or you're playing, you know, like a Jeskai mentor deck, or you're playing even a, against a Delver deck. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think your options are fairly similar. I would
0: posit to be, I kidding. would posit though that uh, the pyromancer gush decks are missing a couple of things that other decks are yeah. uh, include. Like mentor frequently includes Stack Well so there's a three that the pyro gush doesn't always have. Then there's uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor, right, which is a four that the pyro gush doesn't always have. Yeah. Oh, jeez. That's a good point. If you see Murderous Cut, the value of 5 goes way up.
1: True, true. I mean, and there's also Snuff Out, and um, the, the Murderous Cut sits, I believe, at 5. So that would, yeah, that would be... Here, here's what's, what I think people are already talking about, is Shriek Maw is, is likely to start seeing some vintage play. <laughs> I, uh, no I know, joke. I, I mean, being a creature... because that was...
0: <laughs> That started being talked about when Thalia started seeing more play, you know, is just we want something that we can play on curve to get rid of these creatures.
1: It evokes a two mana, so it's not not cheap, but the fact that it's a creature means that it's going to be able to be played through Thalia through yeah. thorn yep. and oh. through this thing without really any, any it doesn't matter what they play right. what they name rather and uh, and it could be could be cast it can be yeah. cast i mean I was just gonna if, say, if it's, the, it's the ingot it's the exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah and every, that's cool. i mean
0: that's that's no joke i mean if you had it, it it's kind of like a, the combination of a doom blade or a Diabolic edict right slow at two, and it's supposed to be speed so that's unfortunate but it's a good card to have once you've rested control of a game and, and you need to finish them off, right? If you're the kind of deck that's just that has Jace the Mind Sculptor in it, then a Jace plus a Shriek Maw in the mid-game could be really
1: potent. Before people get too excited about Shriek Maw, I do want to point out it can't kill artifact creatures which means it's not going to be able to be brought in against oh, yeah. uh, against workshops. Yeah. And it, although it will kill a lot of the, the cards in Eldrazi, no problem there, <laughs> uh, it, it, you can kill a Thought Not Seer, it just can't kill a Trike. Yeah. The other thing, or, or a Ravager or whatever. The other thing, though, about Shriek Maw is it does have uh, fear, so it can't be blocked. It's a but good finisher. It's, a, it's, it's not, you know, it's 3-2. It's but the other thing is that it's never going to trigger a Mentor. So, or a pyromancer. Yeah. So, and
0: all these things are reasons why we're not overrun by Shriek Moss currently.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a similar effect, In fact, it doesn't see any play. Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah. for a similar effect, I think that's why Baleful Strix is seeing a bit of a resurgence right now. It's because it's a creature that you can play through. Yeah, it's a two-for-two
1: t- two mana. Yeah. Yep. So...
0: So worth noting about Shriek Maw. Now, going back to the, the Prelate, though. So I, I do want to switch gears and talk about other magic. Yeah, for sure. Brush is huge. Let's talk about workshops then. Let's talk about some, some Thought Not Seer, Ravager, Trike workshops, right? So you can't cut off any of the creatures.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're playing a humans deck, that's the matchup that's scariest, in my opinion, because they, they just can power, that in Eldrazi, they just power mm-hmm. out larger creatures. And all of your creatures are small, but they have this very disruptive effect. So, you know, a canon, what does a canonist do against a 4-4 each turn? <laughs> You know what is a what does the Thalia do yeah. against that? What is a uh, a um, I don't know Teague or whatever? Any of these hate bears uh, just have I think much less li- you know uti- much more limited utility against against the, the kinds of threats that that workshops can consistently power out. So uh, you've got to be very judicious. I'm not sure where you said it, although <sighs> you know frankly there's there's options everywhere, right? I mean two. Let's just go through what what you hit in a standard yeah. workshop deck, right? Two will hit Ravager, Thorn, no. and so. I'm sorry, it does not hit Ravager, oh, not, not creatures, right? It hit Thorn yeah. Sphere, a, um, a. Um, I was just thinking about what actual cards there exist in those decks. Three That's, will hit. Ta- three will hit Tanglewire, yeah. which seems decent. Well, uh, um, I'd zero like to hits point there. Out that Go
0: ahead. Post Cyborg, three hits Dismember.
1: That's very useful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the current. Fl- uh, Form of and it hits crucible, Sear, and it's crucible, and it's as crucible, well. yeah. But they're not
0: going to have that against you, probably. Yeah, you know, the board. In Trinisphere, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe one or two. But I think hitting member is bigger. In Trinisphere, right? That's it, exactly. That's it. Unless there, you go zero and just try world. and take out their yeah. artifact acceleration. Which,
1: but... I mean, if
0: if you had Lotus, <laughs> if you had Lotus into this plus a plus a noble hierarchy, you could. You could run zero some of the time. Especially if you've got a wasteland yeah. too. Like if you had Lotus this with wasteland hierarchy. <laughs> I mean, zeros gets relevant at that point. Um, but I would say Two is very low impact because one of those twos is Thorn, which if you're playing a multicolored humans list is going to be very low impact on you. That's the sort of card they're going to board out against you, right? So you're almost entirely hitting Sphere Resistance, which is bad equity. I think three is much more effective. Three cuts off critical functional cards for them in Tanglewire, Dismember, and possibly Crucible.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Although there's one other element that we didn't mention, which is which is that it's possible to have Umazawa's Jit yeah. The G- okay. Okay. G- yeah. In yeah. the cyborg or main deck. That's a
0: good point. And if you see that, that's a game changer. So if you don't have a way to answer it or you know stop getting blown out by it, then you're totally right. Well, I really think there's not much more to say. I mean, if you go up against a different variation of workshops, like a stack stack, for example, let's talk about Uber stacks, <laughs> right? Then the math goes totally different there because at four they've got Uber mask and smoke stack, and that could be much bigger.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so so I think what we're saying is that. It's- pretty limited utility against workshops you better be packing you probably want to pack kataki or or something like that there are other there are other anti-artifact tactics in humans there i mean what are some of the best ones uh besides kataki uh well, help me out here oh, if you're in what if
0: you're in white you've got serenity
1: <laughs> that's nasty that's not a human though yeah well no that's it's more be, I mean, that's, a, that's the less a less common uh yeah yeah less common
0: and you already said Kataki, I mean, right? If you're a creature-based deck, Kataki is is pretty huge, and and all the a lot, I mean, a lot of the standard stuff goes in a five-color deck like uh, Nature's Claim, that kind of thing. I think let's talk about a matchup that's potentially game-breaking for this card, and that's Oath, right? So, <laughs> I think I think you addressed it to me in private the very first time you saw this card, and a number of people have echoed it, but against oath if you name two not only are you hitting oath but you're also hitting the commonly played abrupt decay which is its answer to creatures like this and you're also hitting engineered explosives at two (laughs) which is another common tactic of a deck like that to try and get out from under these hate bears granted they can still set it at three and get rid of the prelate but the simple fact is is that that's a that's a powerful impact to their game plan is playing this on two
1: that's a great point. I mean, the, the contemporary oath decks that do really well are pretty strategically versatile. So they can they can win through things like show and tell or chase the mind sculptor. You know, they have balance. Bal- though it is, two would hit balance. That's nice. Um, mm-hmm. But they're they're I think they're you know they don't <laughs> yeah. let me just say they don't lose the game if you can prevent them from playing oath of druids. You know they can always they can always just assemble the old Aryx salvagers combo. No. You know on its own. <laughs> You're right.
0: Also, I mean going, owing to your one of your initial analyses about what other creatures you have, this plus containment priest becomes very challenging to beat then. Because containment priest shuts off the show and tell angle. So I think this is debatably more powerful than even meddling mage is against Oath. Now granted you're paying one more mana. But yeah, that's two interesting. instead of having to do an interesting. Of Oath of Druids, for example, is I think it's it's really strong. Not that not that these human type decks don't already have lots of weapons against Oath, they just keep getting new and new better weapons. But this is just another thing in the arsenal. Sure. And I also I also think we should talk about Dark Petition Storm. Yeah, where do you begin? There's, there's a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of juicy targets there. Right. I, I mean, let, let's just is there a target at every casting cost? I mean, <laughs> zero is relevant, right? One is highly relevant.
1: Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual. Mm-hmm. Tutors. Yeah, top deck, uh, top deck tutors. Uh, yeah, cabal rituals. At I tutor, meant dark. Ri- yeah, dark ritual. Still, yeah.
0: dark ritual, and then Sol ring, mana vault, top deck tutors, and then at two, you said cabal ritual. Demonic that's, tutor. Just, yeah, restricted cards. Demonic tutor. Chain
1: of vapor bar. may also be at one too, so which yeah. is probably the only answer that deck has to this.
0: Right, and then at three, you've got draw seven. Necro and will. And necro and will. Yeah, so that's and tinker if it's coming out of the board, so that's huge.
1: Four. At four, you have
0: Tendrils. four, you have Tendrils, which is notably different than Chalice of the Void, right? Chalice of the Void. They and and go, Empty the Wards. Right? You yeah. just can't even play the cards, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you might want to let them play everything else, but those two and still win. And then at five, you have fairly obviously you have Dark Petition. And then at six, you've got Desire and Bargain. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so there's a juicy target everywhere across the chain. I think... Brutal. I don't know if you can... Brutal. Re- That's so I much better...
1: If- that's so much better than meddling mage. Oh yeah, I,
0: I don't even think you can really come up with a, a solid default answer, because again, going back to your first analysis, it has everything to do with what other things you have in play. If you've got Thalia down, for example, you're not so worried about them storming. You're worried about their answers, so you might choose one to stop Chain of Vapor. If this is the only thing you've got going, right? If they if they played the a setups, if you know if they thought seized your Thalia on turn one and played some setups fell. And this is the only thing you've got to do. You might just go for four. It forces them to answer. I mean, it.
1: to your point, yeah. there's a good chance if this is game one that if you just play this card and name four, your opponent has to scoop. <laughs>
0: don't don't <laughs> most of them have chain of vapor? No, though? no.
1: I do. N- I do not believe so. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Well, it either way. Regardless, though, you, you'll you'll want to consider that possibility when you play it. But the simple truth is that this is just powerfully impactful. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's real. It's pro- it, the, I would say that it's, it's best in that matchup, but what I really mean is it has its most impact, I think, in that matchup. <laughs> the challenge, of course, <laughs> being that it's three mana, so there's a very real chance that you will be dead before you get to three mana. But still, this is another. This is a much better draw against Dark Petition than the likes of, say, Mantis Rider.
1: And it, it's oh arguably yeah, there's no, que- there's no question even. about that. <laughs> it's arguably
0: better than Skept Fan Preserver even, right? Because with the Preserver, there's there's a chance they can just play through it with certain yes. combination Ske- cards. Yes, I guess you I guess you can make the same statement here, right? Play through it with a certain combination means remove it. <laughs> but I guess to put it another way though, if you name a number other than four, then you're effectively hedging against Dark Petition, right? Any number other than four, and they have an avenue to beat you. Just requires a specific combination. So that's where it becomes very context sensitive. It feels like I'm setting up. There's sort of a, a binary between do you name
1: four or do you um, name that's that, that sounds right number. to me. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the, the presumption yeah. is probably four. Um, then you have to post board assume that your opponent has ways to remove your creature. Likely likely mm-hmm. with either chain of vapor or massacre. Probably well massacre doesn't stop by it too. That's busted.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Massacre is, is collateral wow. damage in that case um, So I guess I'll, I would also say that going back to what I said about Pyro Gush, right, if you had turn 1 Thalia and they went land go, then playing this on turn 2 and naming 1 is highly disruptive, so there's also, that, there's also that aspect, if you think that you can basically tempo them out with whatever the rest of your hand is then naming 1 with this and cutting off so many of their options between her and Thalia is, is also very strong well, I think we've elucidated a lot about this card's impact. And we've also made a lot of assumptions about decks that would be
1: played in you know, just in our conversation. Yeah, I think, right? there's, I think there's one thing that it. I, I want to leave our audience thinking about, and that's it, the more I think about it, the more likely it is that you're probably going to be using this card to simult not just for a single narrow function, like a silver bullet, but you're probably going to mm-hmm. try and do two things at once. So if you can hit some of your, your opponent's cards and use it to protect your cards, that's probably going to be your maximal value play. yeah i think you're
0: probably right I, I would say that if we had some possible statistical analysis of all
1: the play of this
0: card over the rest of its life the the median play is probably going to be one
1: <laughs> <laughs> i would say certainly the mode but uh but i mean just yeah. the fact that like if you're <laughs> playing this deck in a human's deck card in a human's deck right where you're going to be deploying thalia and scab clan berserker and spirit of the labyrinth and canonist and priest all that good stuff you're going to want to protect your threats mm-hmm. and so whatever it is like if you can you know name two against oath and that not only prevents them from playing oath but also stops them from abrupt decay and mana drain and their removal then then you're really cooking because then all your creatures become more resilient threats same same by the same token if mm-hmm. you're playing against a gush deck you know and you name one then not only do you hit preordain and probe and all that good stuff but then you make it impossible for them to plow and otherwise pick off your creatures so as easily. Yeah, yeah, I
0: agree completely. Playing and playing the second one of these is going to feel really funny. because <laughs> like, everything, everything we've said about having one choice just gets so it's so yeah, much it's easier. Like yeah, it's, it's like it's
1: like when people thing. were loading up with chalices, right? <laughs> chalice for zero, chalice for one, chalice right. for two. Oh my god, that's a play <laughs> we no longer see in vintage. So welcome to vintage, prelate. Yeah.
0: Oh, you know what? <laughs> nice. I, when you compared it to Chalice just then, I remembered something I wanted to point out, and that is, Chalice, obviously, part of its the impetus for its restriction was its low-cost-to-high-impact effect. You play it for zero on the play, and it has a huge impact on your opponent's ability to interact with you, right? This card has the flip side. You can't easily play it early, but as soon as you can play it, it scales up to the highest values immediately. Right. Workshop True. players would love True. to be able True. to reliably play True. Chalice at five
1: to to cut that, off your That's interesting. Force will the, Gosh, what you're saying, yeah. What you're saying Bureau is that the, the the beginning. implicit premise of Chalice of the Void is that being able to prevent your opponent from resolving higher cast spells should require more effort and more resources. And in, <laughs> well, I don't know about that's sure. The, that's the, the of presumption, card, right? Does. Yeah. So in <laughs> yeah. this case, I mean, well, if if that wasn't the case, why would Chalice be designed that way? Why wouldn't it just
0: uh, I see your... No, I totally see your point. You're right. That's, the should is yeah. um, so, part of the design. So
1: here, design. you can, to your point, like, you could just slam it and name 13 if you wanted, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
0: which, is, uh, which is a highly number. <laughs> if your opponent has <laughs> that's that, funny. I recall. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, no, that's a very good point. And that could mean different impacts in yes. different
1: environments. Well,
0: obviously, I mean, this card's only going to see play in Vintage See yeah. and EDH, but... In Legacy, some of the the speed of that format is not based yes. on zero. But yeah. In Vintage, and so in Legacy, it could be much more reasonable to name a higher cost card in certain matchups, like against that Nauseam tendrils. You just named the five. <laughs> I mean, it's I think it's hard harder for them to beat you when they can't play their five than it is for something like Dark Petition in Vintage when they can't play their five. And I think there's a lot of corollaries in that respect. So I. Formats. You you named thirteen. You know, off the cuff, which is which is great and funny. But at the same time, in a format where Embercool was common, that's a, that's a completely reasonable way and quickly to form a major speed bump to the late game. Whereas you could never accomplish that with Chalice.
1: That's true. I, I want to, before we wrap up our, our analysis of this card, I want to just draw out a little bit more something you've said a number of times already, but I don't think we've fully unpacked, which is the fact that this card mm-hmm. prevents you from playing spells, not just resolving them mm. um they're, they're they're rather cast because there actually is a card that prevents people from playing spells and that is sitting in a bottle we're not dealing with we're not de- dealing with <laughs> sitting in a bottle here but but the difference is actually profound in contemporary vintage because i think more than i can ever remember before there are more uncounterable spells storm spells and split second cards than i've ever seen before so so oh, you know just the, the presence yeah. of supreme verdict alone as a major threat is is hugely significant here.
0: That's a really good point. So this is a preemptive answer to Supreme verdict for those mentor and or mocha yeah, and there's all, I mean matches. there's
1: all kinds of uncounterable spells like that. I mean there's a volcanic fallout at one point. Um, there mm-hmm. are yeah certainly Abrupted you've Acay. already mentioned abrupt decay, mm-hmm. um, and you know I've I have seen people playing with cards like uh, sudden shock. And um, certainly, sudden shock and, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, sulfur elemental is another split second card that has has seen quite a bit of vintage play and is effective against this card. So if you were to name three, oh sorry, actually this does not do anything about sulfur elemental, but it does it does it does <laughs> stop uh, it does stop um, all the other split second cards.
0: Yeah, sorry, we keep getting hung up on the non-creature part. We'll
1: get there. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's a really good point. I mean, this is. The, vintage has become a home for certain niche cards that are highly effective at what they do for, for the reason you just stated. So many Storm cards, so many. So many in cards, Same Place. Also in the cards with Evoke, right? So the. Now, obviously, this doesn't hit anything with Evoke, but those are examples of cards that are niche in their. Yeah. implications of a, a castability or resolvability and this plays havoc with that kind of interaction i, I think we got to start talking about yes yeah
1: let's shift at that because
0: well, i mean we we okay so we know that this card has a very a very this reliably card is, good is
1: effect. i'd say a virtual automatic inclusion somewhere in the 75 of a five color beatdown deck disruptive hate bears deck i think it's i think it's also virtually an auto include in some number non-zero number in the 75 of a mono white hate bears deck so whether you go from white to five color it's going to be in Mm -hmm. there somewhere (laughs) any version that has white and likely cavern souls will you'll have white it's going to be in in that kind of deck i think the open question is the one you said near the very beginning which is will this go into an eldrazi deck that's a harder question that's a tougher question i still think the answer may be yes this is so powerful That it it, with Cavern and some number of white cars, it's still Mm. good enough to run. And
0: I would. I said that because I believe you are right. I believe it's possible. It's just going to require an adaptation of the mana base of those decks. And you might have to sacrifice something else somewhere. But that, I mean, that kind of goes without saying, right? That's a totality. You've got to cut something off a current deck in order to fit a new card. But I do think the impact of the mana base is highly relevant. So. My conclusion would be it doesn't go in every White
1: Eldrazi Yeah, let me deck, just point out, so the, the beginning of White Eldrazi in the Vintage Format was Randy Bueller's daily event White Eldrazi 4 deck from May 25th of this year. His mana base was the full... actually had four Moxen, Lotus, Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, four Eldrazi Temple, four Ancient Tomb, one Strip Mine, four Wasteland, four Cavern of Souls, one Caracas, and five Planes. That obviously has evolved over time, and we saw... You know, mm-hmm. more Caracas here and there. Some people played cave, ca- Caves of Colios, so on and so forth. But there's there's a number of different ways to build it. Uh, I think that, I do think it's possible to run one like this. Jayco's, he calls it THC White Eldrazi from August 2016, and his mm-hmm. mana base has four Cavern Souls, one Caves of Colios, one Brushlands, one Caracas, two Plains. So that is only nine white sources outside of the. Box Pearl and Black Lotus, I think if you just enhance that a little bit, you might might be able to get close enough.
0: Well, I just realized there's an excellent
1: allegory here,
0: and that is Black Lotus 1 on the Mana Drain has, has 3 one dailies twice in the last month with white-black Eldrazi, it's, but it's it's more like Eldrazi humans. He has 12 there you sources go. of white-slash-black. He has four caverns, four caves, and four scrublands.
1: I love that these Ice Age lands are seeing playing in Vintage again. It's so yeah, wild. Well,
0: what's most noteworthy I just realized is he's already rocking a creature at this mana cost. He's Interesting. rocking Banachir Priest. Now, only two of them, but that's that's the same exact body as this... Prelate, and it's already seeing play in, in so, some dailies. Now he's the only one doing this. and It's only twice, how, but yeah. How could you, you, is, if you're running Banisher Priest, how
1: could small. you not run this in that deck, right? I mean, Banisher Priest is. Don't get me wrong, it's pretty intriguing. It it can you know deal with some things, but yeah. but this card is yeah. It's not nearly as impactful as this. And by the way, naming one is going to be completely asymmetrical, right? I mean, do you have do they even oh, have yeah. any white oh, one yeah. mana card? spells?
0: No, they usually don't. I mean, sometimes those decks have had access to plow. like They don't even run board, it. But they, not, I guess, not really. Yeah, the no, only one, one that he spells run. I
1: think they even run is just Digger's Cage out of the board.
0: Right, or Needles. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's going to be totally asymmetrical.
1: That's nuts. And even if it's
0: not entirely, it's still yeah. nuts. Um, so let's talk numbers, because I just confirmed on TC decks for Eldrazi Displacer, in paper, has not had that many appearances this year. And top 8s, I mean. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 paper top 8s for Displacer. There have been 3 for Meddling Mage. Those are all on the sideboards. So I'm just looking for comparable cards, cards that would direct you to playing this card. I think that measuring some combination of Displacer and Meddling Mage and perhaps a creature that directly points to humans like Mayor... Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: There have been there have been four top eights for mayor so far this year. Uh, oh, but the, the earliest one was in May, so it's been in the last quarter. So I think those numbers are are instructive, right? Unless we see a huge boom in the effectiveness of five color humans in the meta game, which anything's possible, right? But I think those numbers are instructive. I think somewhere between four and ten is probably the right result. Maybe four and twelve, maybe somewhere in that range. Because, because even though it won the bizarre of Moxen, five color humans is not a dominant force in the metagame. game. In fact, it's it's it's, a, it's just a nit. Well, Eldrazi is far yeah, more. Yeah, I mean, impactful. white Eldrazi
1: has made a lot of top eights. It's appeared a lot of times.
0: It's less less so in paper
1: than than online, but
0: I mean, it's it's made strong appearances too, right? The like NYSE and the Mandarin Open. I'm not diminishing the deck. I'm just pointing out the realistic numbers when it comes to our predictions. Are there has been about sixteen you know, appearances of Displacer in the last quarter. And so I think that puts an upper bound on how many of this card could appear. I think the right place for this is probably a 5
1: to 10. That is a very quarter. reasonable analysis. Uh, I am going to take the over. <laughs> okay. Whatever you say, I will take the over. I mean,
0: you... <laughs> Well... I don't think, like I said before, I don't think this goes in every white human or white Eldrazi deck. But the more I think about it, this yes. card is really exciting. It calls back to Chalice yes. really powerfully, and Chalice is a very, a very light, you know, it's a very lightning rod kind but, of card in this
1: format. I think the community. card is better. It's, I mean, we just started saying it has a natural home in humans and hate bears, and then yeah. certainly has a potential home in Eldrazi variants, white Eldrazi variants. But I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the end of the list i think it has a comfortable home in other okay. places and i think it could be a very powerful tool out of the sideboard i mean imagine it could be even like a mentor sideboard card like against oath or whatever i mean who mm-hmm. knows this card is interesting i mean this card is really good yeah. you could bring you could bring it in against you know like dark petition is in a mentor deck i mean who knows <laughs> you're you're completely
0: correct so I mean,
1: there's not, there's no four, very few forecasting cost spells in mentor decks. So just naming tendrils or whatever could really just win the game.
0: That's a good point. So maybe I'm underselling a little bit. The new Thalia, for example, has put up only two top eights according to TC decks, and that's instructive of how quick people are adopting things. Because you and I both agreed that was a major um, sure, natural sure. home in
1: white Eldrazi.
0: Now, granted, that card's very new, and that only goes back to July, well, so we only got a, Well, you know, I guess month, the month I guess the month. answer to, but, uh, the, to
1: how we would evaluate it is, what's the period we're going to be evaluating? Because if we're including the vintage championship in in this in this period, or we're just looking until the next set. Well, we will. Okay, well then I'm the taking way over. I'm taking the way over from five to ten. <laughs> the, well, what, that's only one. No, of that. no, because I mean, that,
0: the most it but, could no, add but, the number but, is eight. Okay,
1: well, <laughs> There's a synecdoche there, right? I wasn't just talking about the vintage championship; I was talking about all the lead-up, the run-up. The I mean, we just we just went through like a a record number of announcements because people are going to be doing tune-ups, right? So I mean, there's going to be the prelim events. There's going to be top eights for that. You know, there's going there's going to be the Eternal Weekend in Europe, the week before, the week after. I forget which. So I think that um, we're going to see a really dense concentration of vintage championship, vintage tournament top eight appearances. And therefore, I think this card's going to show up a lot.
2: Okay.
0: Well, you've you've talked me into going at the higher end of my range, but I'm still only going to go to ten because I I'm concerned about over-predicting yeah, a no, lot of these
1: cards. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm going to go seventeen. So, all right. I like it. We'll have something to discuss after. Man, that was a lot of energy for the first card. Does, does, Fortunately, we don't deserve have a yeah, deserving of it. <laughs> We there's one thing we didn't yeah. mention though is but this card becomes vintage legal when? so just so folks know
0: so the release date for Conspiracy 2 is August 26th so break out your proxies that's the date start proxying it up legal.
1: now and testing it <laughs> uh, for, <laughs> I know I will be. <laughs> print it out right now uh, but what, what's interesting though is so obviously this isn't conspiracy so it may be a little bit hard to find but there's no announcement as to when this is going to be legal on Magic Online
0: well, that's because they don't print yeah. conspiracy on Magic. So
1: Online. we could have a very, very different format between pa- paper and Magic, more than there already is, <laughs> uh, for for a period here. Yeah. huh?
0: Yeah, for for however long it takes them to figure out what cards they want to put in the next Vintage or modern, or modern, not modern, Vintage Masters or or whatever.
1: So uh, Dak that they put Fate in arrived in Vintage in. Vintage Masters, which you know, on Magic Online, which was released June, so it wasn't that that 16. long after. I so we could be long. we could be facing a situ- an unprecedented situation here, where you've got a kind of a format staple that's not actually available on Magic Online, unless they come up with some additional distribution mechanism.
2: Yeah
0: good point the
1: better this card is the more significant that gap will be
0: yeah and that's not the only card that we're going to talk about here so let's talk about duretti ingenious iconoclast (laughs) i love that name one black red planeswalker duretti (laughs) plus one put a one one colorless construct artifact creature token with defender onto the battlefield minus one You may sacrifice an artifact if you do destroy target artifact or creature. Minus six. Choose target artifact card in a graveyard or artifact on the battlefield. Put three tokens that are copies of it onto the battlefield. Starting loyalty of three. I I don't even know where to begin. So red-black as a color combination is... There are not many cards in vintage that are seeing play that require those two colors but it's still a very common color combination right grixis pyromancer is very popular grixis control still crops up here and there so the mana cost is relatively straightforward at three mana of red and black it's not without its cost of course as longtime vintage players know especially these decks that have duress and or cobble therapy and or thought Fetching up that underground sea on turn one is sometimes invitation yep. of disaster, but I still think the mana cost here is imminently reasonable in multiple decks.
1: Yeah. There
0: haven't been there haven't been many three mana planeswalkers since Yeah. No. Th-
1: this card is a, a artifact destroying machine. I mean, it it's it's it immediately springs <laughs> to mind to my mind cards like Trigon Predator and Um uh, which which both sit at yes, that definitely. three mana mm, awkward multi color casting cost. This card, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but this card certainly reminds me of something that would fit into a Grixis deck, a Grixis control deck. They could have excessive artifacts, you could throw them to de- just turn after turn destroy uh, a workshop board.
0: Mm-hmm. And even though sacrificing your in can be counterproductive in some games against workshops, in my eyes, the kind of worst case scenario is, you resolve if you resolve this, you can trade your Mox for the Sphere that's making um, yeah. spells expensive, right? So you can somewhat break even in terms of the results on your mana and if you can afford to do it instead you can sacrifice your mocks to destroy a creature that's threatening you and <laughs> <your> threat here <laughs> so I so I think the notion that it's I, mean, I would think it's default game play is going to be three mana sorcery speed removal definitely of sort that then leaves behind the, the threat of more. And a one one blocker is definitely is, is imminently reasonable in vintage right now. I mean, there's a lot of Eldrazi creatures that it can just chump like a thought not yeah. seer. And uh, it's it's threat it's threatening to a, sure. a pyromancer. <laughs> and unless you're really facing lethal, it soaks up damage from a mental. It can
1: protect other planeswalkers, so, not just itself as it, well. It, it,
0: so That's a good point. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's not a great you know, it's not a powerful effect, but as soon as you've switched gears from sacrificing your mocks into creating one ones, I think that's a major turning well, point for Well, a game I mean,
1: in, think about this. So if you were to whatever, play this on turn one, like mocks, mocks, land, for just serious, like you're playing Grixis <laughs> Thieves, a big mana blue deck. Yeah. You what like Trigon Predator, you could play this proactively and then you would probably just put the creature into play mm-hmm. immediately. And then this, and then, then you've got oh, yeah. defense in play, you've got an attacker. And you could even, like, next turn attack with a 1-1 and then destroy an opponent's sphere or something. Well, the 1-1 does have Defender.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But your point is well made, though, is that coming out early, this can build up resources for you. And even though its ultimate is really big and splashy, it's not really necessary, right? You can just control the board with this. And Revoker is going to be an issue, but that goes for all Planeswalkers. And you know what, though, is this comes down before Revoker in such a way, I mean, if it could, I mean, if it comes down before Revoker, it has a a funny interaction there, because as soon as you plus, and then they revoke this, there's a standoff, because the Revoker is now just sitting back on defense, and there's a certain value in that, too. Yeah. I don't know, I just, I I think that this card fills a bit of a niche, like, I mean, Trigon Predator, I think, is my favorite comparison. Dak is an apt comparison, also, but Dak's so much more splashy, given the control change. This, I think, is very close to the Trigon Predator kind of effect that Grixis really kind of wanted
1: for true. ages. True, true. Honestly. Yeah. It's a it very is. controlling card. And it's, card. it's, and it's great in so yeah. many matchups. So many matchups, yeah.
0: And the fact that you would, as you properly surmised, put it into a big mana blue deck, a deck that already has full Moxin and, you know, Soul Ring and maybe a couple of other ancillary artifacts... It doesn't take much. You, you put in a, an engineer explosive explosives here or there and all of a sudden this could become this could, you know, this could destroy things somewhat out of the blue.
1: Yeah. Uh, reliably. This is a really interesting card. I mean, yeah. the, the, the fundamental reason that we need artifact removal to be efficient is because you're usually playing with spheres on the board. But the reason these proactive cards don't need to be quite as efficient and so they shouldn't be evaluated with that level of circumspection is because they are proactive. Is that they can come down before the full, all the sphere effects are on the table. So
0: that's part of the reason why a long ago vintage staple, Rack and right. Ruin, sees no play anymore. Is because even though trading three
1: mana oh, effects yeah. is deal. a good deal, you know, it's a it's a good deal.
0: Um, the fact that it's likely to cost four, right? Puts Whereas it, you know, like the the, the
1: for the same advantage. effect, a Shattering Spree is still three
0: exactly you, you need things that scale down not yeah. in order to fight spheres that's why that's why your ingats and your shattering spree are so commonplace and that's why as you put it anything you can play before a sphere might come down is an increased value like that and try and of this yeah you know what this reminds me of is um interesting, interesting. heretic <laughs> which hasn't seen play for you know much for for ages I'm but, sure uh,
1: the truth's been around yeah but that's a good one well, really? I, I thought I'd seen it. I thought I saw it at some point in the not-too-distant <laughs> yeah. past.
0: Well, you know what? Maybe uh, Maybe it's a sideboard card. Yeah, I'm certain it is. should be looking in the right place, yeah. Yep, I, I was mistaken. There are, there has been appearances in sideboards, yeah.
1: Well, Conspiracy, we've just looked at two cards that's already given us, I think, quite so, like two vintage playables. Solid. <laughs>
0: that's certainly true. And you know, the more that I look at it, Viashino Heretic has put up a couple of one-of sideboard appearances in 2016 in a strange variety of decks. Control Slaver, Landstill, uh, Grixis Control, that's not as much of a surprise. Even a Gush Aggro deck had one in the sideboard. You know, a thing in the Ice deck. That's <laughs> really interesting. Still, in the last quarter, these are all in the sideboard. It looks like it's put up only three appearances in the last quarter, with another four in the first quarter. Now granted, this can't go into all of those slots because you can't go into that landstill deck that's not playing black and it can't go in that thing in the ice deck that's also not playing black but simple truth is is that that's a pretty good bellwether for the fact that this mana cost in this kind of strategic position is definitely viable now grixis control has not been very popular lately but it, it goes you know it shouldn't go unsaid that grixis got second place exactly
1: champs last let's year let's not forget that <laughs> and this good card Lord. would have
0: been pretty good in that deck in that tournament yeah now, the, the infusion of Eldrazi makes this slightly less good in the workshop matchups, right? This doesn't have much to say about a, a Thought-Not-Seer or a Reality Smasher. It's especially bad against Reality Smasher, actually, because the 1-1s don't play good defense. But it can hold off a Thought-Not-Seer, just a Thought-Not-Seer, indefinitely, with its plus. So there's something there. And if you build your deck with this in it cleverly, then the ultimate becomes
1: a threat yeah let's talk about that for just a second yeah how how do you envision that yeah
0: well so let's be clear the ultimate is choose target artifact card in a graveyard or artifact on the battlefield and put three tokens that are copies of it onto the battlefield so even middling artifacts that have you know modest impacts on the game can have big impacts when you suddenly get three (laughs) of (laughs) them. Now, granted, there's not a lot of there aren't a lot of middling artifacts that would meet that description and vintage, but it wouldn't take much if you had one kind of tinker target that is the sort that didn't reshuffle itself, like a Sphinx of the Steel Wind, like a, a Worm Coil Engine, like a Triskelion. I can envision many matchups where your opponent could not <laughs> in three of them. Yeah,
1: Wormcoil engine seems particularly brutal. Yeah. I mean,
0: it, w- yeah, worm coil is a beating if, if, you know, if they're trying to fight it with removal, of course. You know, okay, so let's talk about removal. Um, Supreme Verdict, for example, would be a fine answer to three Sphinx of the Steel win, but not three Wormcoil engines. And three Trikes are immediately 9 damage to the dome, so there's plenty of games that would just end immediately if you put three Trikes into play. And it would not take much to construct your deck, such that you had just a couple, you know, even two uh, cards like this, and such that you can manipulate the board state, such that you can cast a trike or a worm coil. And woe be to the opponent who lets you have three mindslavers. Oh, except they're legendary. Darn, can't get triple mindslaver out of this. You get one though, (laughs) which is frequently enough. Yeah. You can get three. Yeah, I was trying
1: to think. What kind of artifacts are naturally put in the graveyard? And if you're playing a Grixis deck, you might even have like a. I don't know, a um, engineer explosives or something like that in the graveyard. They might want to recur with this. Yeah, sure. you only get
0: three copies of it at zero, though. So that's kind of like only getting one engineer explosives at zero. But hey, if you're facing down lethal pyromancer tokens, then you do what you got to do to stay alive. <laughs> I could see strange. I could see you getting up to just plussing this because you don't have anything better to do, and then your opponent goes you know, young pyromancer, time walk, flashback time walk, and, and you're, you're suddenly you're facing a, a lethal army, even though you've had this in play. <laughs> That's a really strange scenario, but it's not impossible. You know what's also funny is you could put three copies of Sensei's Divining Top in
1: play. Ooh. You could put... Now you're talking. <laughs> yeah,
0: you could put three time vaults into play.
1: That's less interesting. But...
0: <laughs> well, you could skip four turns in a row. Sure. I mean, you know. You could have four total time vaults in play. You could skip four <laughs> turns in a row. No, I don't think that's gonna happen. <clears throat> you could put three voltaic keys into play. And if you had other things, like if you had top, then having three keys oh, yeah. means you can draw a lot of cards. Now, you don't need more than three keys with Key Vault. But, but you know, it's worth no- noting that this helps you reassemble Key Vault if you have half in play and half in the graveyard. The fact that you get three of them doesn't matter, you just need the one. So, this is a way of putting back together Key Vault if you tried to put it out or it got countered or destroyed. Yeah. That's relevant, right? That lets you That lets you have a Goblin Welder style effect without running
1: welders. This card does like also it. feed affinity. So, if you want to play with Thought Cast, you know, this card can certainly make that more efficient. That's,
0: that's certainly good because then your Seed of the Synods <laughs> Yeah. double duty, right? They feed your Thought Cast and then they feed the Ready as Removal. That's definitely relevant. So it looks like in the last quarter since May, see that the sign out has put up five top eight. Interesting. Labor. Now it's worth noting that three of those are in workshop yeah. decks, though. Right, three of those are the Master of Ethereum style workshop decks, which this already would not go into. Only two of them were Control Slaver, which is the kind of home we're talking about here. Yeah, that's that's pretty instructive right there. I would say I think this is a highly this is a highly focused card. It goes in. You know, one style of deck, mostly. It goes in Grixis control and derivations
1: there. Well, that's the thing, is that it, it, it certainly seems to me that it could be slipped into a, a Dark Petition sideboard. You know, so you've got the kind of Hercules-type effects, but but this is a proactive card that could just hmm. turn, turn after turn, pick off Interesting. The, the spheres until you can get to the point where you can use it in a big way. You could also, in the best...
0: Kind of like... Kind of like trying on exactly. predator. And in you know what? Day. Is
1: on, we didn't even mention it, but the absolute best use of this, that the ultimate is on memory jar. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you could just you could deck your opponent literally with that. Wow, you,
0: you're totally that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. So, you're, so you brought this in in the sideboard of a dark petition deck, and you you <laughs> jimmied it into play, and then you spent a couple of turns trading it for spheres and trying to stay alive. But in doing so, you weren't you weren't you know furthering any of your other plans. Let's say you're searching for mana or answers or something, or you're sacrificing your Moxen to stay alive, and you get to this point finally, and you're like, all right, time to win this game, and you put that Moxen yeah, back. Yeah, I'll jar. Time <laughs> you could jar again. <laughs> I mean, how, how would you possibly lose at that point? That's, that's incredible. <laughs> uh, no, you're totally right. I mean, that's assuming you clear the board of spheres. Three jars should be
1: enough. I mean, a it, if, like, like you said, it's it's like Trigon Predator in Doomsday. I mean the Capacity to play this proactively on turn one just mm-hmm. makes it so attractive. It just makes it just just enough so that you can play the hercules yeah. and then win the game. In the meantime, you have you. It, it does yeah, double duty. It it protects your life total by creating tokens, and then it also destroys opposing artifacts. So I mean, it's it's perfect. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Well, that's that's exciting actually. I think that's that's pretty legitimate. Owing uh, to our conversation about the prelate in uh, White Eldrazi, I don't think everyone's going to do that, but I do think that's a relevant metric. So to to use the combine all the metrics we've been talking about for estimation, Dark Petition Storm has put up about 10 top eights in the last quarter in paper. Grix's control in paper is still only a, a scant few. It looks like two or three. And I can't think of another comparison. What's is there any other comparison you would make to try and level set this?
1: What, what do you mean by com- what does that mean? I just mean
0: a, a card that this would take the place of, or a, a card that. A deck well, this goes in would play. Oh, Heretic, we talked about.
1: Yeah, I, I was going to say this could also go into five color beat decks. Beats decks is another proactive. Uh, you know, so you certainly have. Are those
0: decks artifact heavy enough, though, to justify? I mean, generate. First know of all. It, but, but you don't want to play they, plus it and then minus I, it. That's super slow.
1: In my in the version that I had built, a five color, I had all five Moxon. And I had, oh, let's okay. see, I think, I think I had Lotus Petal as well. I just think, well, one of those oh, decks Oh, probably oh probably not all. No. Not only did I have all five mocks and a Lotus Petal and Black Lotus, I also had four Phyrexian Revokers and a Null Rod and Canonists, which are all artifacts. So oh,
0: well, you're right. That's a lot of artifacts. Wouldn't the deck like that want Trigon more, though?
1: Yes, I think so. But okay. but there may be versions of those decks that are just that are not five color that are I don't know black red white or whatever that don't have green or blue. Yeah, so fair enough.
0: Well, I, you might be right, but that's going to be a vanishingly small number, if it's true, right? That's going to be like five-color humans level or,
1: or less. I, I feel like there is a, one of those charm effects, Rakdos charm, that people mm-hmm. have have noodled around with in the past, and this seems like, you know, anyway. This card is versatile. Are
0: you, are, are you thinking about Kholigon's Command? That's it. Thank you. Yeah, which has the same mana cost yes. as the whole removing an artifact or removing a creature kind of. Yeah, that's a very apt comparison, but it has only put up looks like one top eight this quarter in a main deck and then in sideboards looks like none. So it's it's just not not putting up any numbers. But you're right that's a very apt comparison. So I think all of these things are pointing to somewhere in the realm of 2 to 2 to 6 or I mean something that's what I'm feeling. <laughs> I mean this is even if every Grixis control deck played this and then you know every control slaver variant we've seen—that's only going to put it to five-ish in terms of top eight appearances. Those archetypes are just not putting up big numbers. Okay. And then if dark petition—if dark petition really t- takes off on this, then that would put it up above ten. But I find it hard to believe well, that it'll become standard in a dark petition sideboard. Fair enough. Yeah. So I'm going to go with—I'm going to go with three. <laughs> It's such a, I know, it's such an exciting card, and it's such an exciting role to be played, but it's not a role that is common in the format.
1: For I'm going to so. take the over. I'm going to go five. I think this card is is more powerful than that. I don't, think this is a, I don't think this is just a marginal card. I think it's a little bit more than that. Okay.
0: Well, that's cool. I, I, I for one, welcome our Duretti
1: overlords. <laughs> Duretti. <laughs> <laughs> what the, what's with the another... Italian Planeswalkers? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that goes well with the Eldrazi. <laughs> We've got a we've got to talk about the other planeswalker in the room and this is kea i'm hoping i'm pronouncing that right kea ghost assassin for two white black planeswalker kea zero exile kea ghost assassin or up to one target creature return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of your next upkeep you lose two life that's all her zero Minus one, each opponent loses two life, you gain two life. Minus two, each opponent discards a card, and you draw a card, starting loyalty of five. This card is so cool. Uh, she has an unprecedented method of gaining, so to speak, loyalty, which is by blinking herself, which is totally cool. So just, that's the first thing. And then the fact that she can remove herself is the most, <laughs> the most effective way of protecting herself from any planeswalker ever right
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
0: your, your opponent is the only uh, the only way they could remove yeah. her is by using one of those silly cards that takes something out well, of exile like a rift sweeper
1: what's that what's the effect there was a a keyword mechanic i believe from the mid or late 90s it's probably the late 90s it, it had a similar kind of effect it's it's only vague now where are kind of like oh phasing, about, phasing. phasing. yeah yeah
0: yeah, this is a little bit like voluntary phasing. She's a little bit like the original uh, Rainbow of right?
1: Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what that rem- yeah. reminds me of.
0: Yeah, she's a little bit of lineage but all the way back to Rainbow of That's funny. Okay, so let's talk about this, though. So she can exile herself. That's powerful in the sense that you're not going to be able to remove her, but it's also not very interesting in terms of winning a game. But she can also instead take another creature out of play. So she she says, exile her or up to one target creature. Return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of your next upkeep. Which means if you do it on your turn, it's gone for the rest of your turn and all of their turn. So that's pretty effective elimination, that preventing a creature from impacting the game. So she can blank a creature, but you lose two life every time you do that, so it's not indefinite. Then she has a drain effect, so they lose two, you gain two, and she has they discard one, you draw one. Which in my eyes means that you're gonna be either zeroing her or yep. minus twoing her. Right? The,
1: the, the minus two play. ability is so good. I mean it is so good. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's harsh and the it's fact harsh. that she comes in with five means that it can be used twice immediately. I mean that's I mean it's it's him the Torok. Right. It's you lose it's it's nuts. It's this <laughs> Yeah, it's
0: it's like half of having both of them back. Effect, yeah.
1: Right?
0: <laughs> they discard one and you draw one. It's, yeah, it's half of that back thief
1: combo. To be able to do that immediately mm-hmm. is so attractive. Yeah.
0: So she's. it seems like she's got her bases covered in terms of well. Nullifying a creature, or it's, just yeah, being a card advantage, it's slash card disruption advantage. kind of engine. We've you talked in the past well.
1: about what kind of defines effective planeswalkers, and one of the elements is has always mm-hmm. been the capacity to, to generate card advantage, and and you know we've seen yes. that with Tezzeret since the very beginning, the first one to make a big splash, Tezzeret, to Jace the Mind Sculptor, mm-hmm. which which doesn't do it immediately, but does it the subsequent turn. This card does it immediately. Card advantage off the bat.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, no, we've never seen that, that right? I
1: mean, w- in
0: that she, she's yeah, you're plus one card if this minus two ability I mean, happens. It, properly. Tesserit isn't
1: plus one card; yeah. it just gets the best, you know, a good artifact immediately. This card is that's yeah. that's power. That's power. <laughs> that's no joke.
0: <laughs> now let's not overstate the issue though, because they get to choose what card they discard. Sure, sure. So there's that element, right? You are getting their worst card in theory, and if they have no cards in hand, then it's nothing. But that's not going to be very common in vintage.
1: But you get a card out of the deal regardless. So,
0: so. you get a card, if, yeah, either way. So it's still plus plus one on subsequent turns, even if their hand is empty, which is good. And we've talked about before about comparing it, raw card draw to it, Jace's brainstorm. Let me ask ability. though
1: about the the loyalty thing. So the blink so, out brings it back to five, right? That's so nuts. Yes. This is nuts. So I mean, <laughs> it could just well be that the the proper usage for this is draw a card, you discard a card, draw a card, you discard a card, blink, and then just start all over. I mean, it's it's yeah. insane.
0: Well, I mean, any in any game where you're just brainstorming with Jace, that's probably the equivalent default usage for Kea here.
1: Yeah. And she also starts out out of bolt range, so she can't be she's going to be hard to attack and kill. I mean. If you, uh, yeah. if you minus immediately, yeah. Yeah, but or they though, Yeah.
0: But if you're if you're trying to stay alive, you know, or, or blank their creatures, then yeah, she's unboltable. So that's good. Yeah, five is a healthy start, Very. right? <laughs> but the the funny thing is the funny thing is is five is never actually going to be the relevant number, is it? Because <laughs> 'Cause you're either gonna play her and reduce her to four or three, or you're gonna and play blink. her you could blink. Oh yeah. no, I, t- I take that back. Never mind. If, I'm sorry. I'm thinking you're always blinking her, but that's not true. If you're blinking their creature, yes, she's just exactly. with five. Yeah. Wow. That's actually that's actually highly relevant against Eldrazi. Like they've got Thalia and a Displacer and Thought Not Seer. The only thing that takes her down is Yeah. Elden no. Smasher. I mean,
1: did you, did, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, the fact that she could take out, a, like yeah. you said, a Thalia immediately, and it's not going to come back until your next turn. So your t- the remainder of your yeah. turn, you get you get to play with that unimpeded, yeah. and then the remainder of their turn, you get and, yeah, yeah. This is this is post. very. This card is very good. Yeah. This is this. I, because I can't there aren't a corollary there for are this. None.
0: I mean, except for fate. Well, but, but with regard to how long she yeah. blinks for, though, that's the thing. Except for phasing, which yes. you properly identified. <laughs> all the blink effects we have in the game exactly. right now don't last. That's why this it reminded long. me of that. This is kind of an yeah. unprecedented. It's link. a rainbow of yeah. rain. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: blinking for blinking for your rest of your turn and all of theirs is is. is Huge, and it has some implications for a lot. Of and, things.
1: and as you're as you're pointing out, I mean that's there really are a th- sort of record number of tokens in this format right now. That doesn't it's not trivial either. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Sure.
0: If you get into a situation where you just
1: got to this, clean card up this card is insane. This card this uh, card really, really has four like abilities. Let's just keep that clear because it's true. Yeah. Zero is
0: modal, kind of. Yeah. So yeah. It's that's,
1: a, that's a four ability. So that's interesting. It's too. A f- this is kind of like a four, yeah. a four ability
0: thing. <laughs> <point. it'll>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when you say it like that, it's sort of like pl- pl- her fourth ability is to five. Set this exactly. But it, but it, but it, it yeah. does more than that, so though, because it does also protect story. her.
1: It means that she can't be attacked, she well, can't sure, be removed, sure. she can't be destroyed in any manner whatsoever. She's completely inaccessible.
0: <laughs> yeah. And how often have you used Jace the Mind Sculptor's plus ability uh, for very little impact many. Just to get his blessing yes. back up? Right. And and that, the that fact that, happens, that this yeah. can
1: go from zero to four mm-hmm. means that that plus ability is functionally plus four. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. And also really the dumb. fact that she's when she removes um, a creature that she can go again from one to five is also nuts. So it, it can be blank a creature plus yeah. four. <laughs>
0: Don't forget to you life. lose two loyalty yeah. or
1: sorry life every time. There you is use a limit, that. there is so a limit, but it's, it's but not, but the limit is also yeah, mitigated by the, the fact better. that you can use her second ability to gain life again.
0: So her, it's funny, her second ability then kind of becomes an analog the analog sec- to Jace's
1: plus. Exactly. In the se- context,
0: <laughs> right, you're using it to gain more loyalty. This, from the your second ability is, is
1: actually this kind of fail-safe built in to make sure that she can go infinite. Yeah, you're right, and also, oh, by the way, yeah. it's also a win
0: condition. Wow. Oh, wow, interesting. So if you got her with Tidespout Tyrant. Oh,
1: for sure. She's an yeah. She's an infinite. You need to kill your opponent. You <laughs> need to have a, a, a the the white and black mana. But yep. If you have, if you have yeah. a mox if you have Tidespout Tyrant, a Mox, Opal, and two other Moxen, she is a win condition. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Anyway,
0: the about thing's never going to happen. No. So we're we we we're skipping our due diligence here, though. Let's talk about this mana cost, because this mana cost is unprecedented. Is, there's nothing like this mana cost in Vintage. But there are plenty of cards that are two and two designated, yeah. right? We've already talked Mo- about Jason. Moat is seeing play mode. in Vintage
1: right now. Yeah. Is, and, and there's all the, the, oh, there's yeah, all the there's, uh, uh, angels that have seen play. Restoration Angel. Uh, yeah, and there's... Yep. Uh,
0: Notion Thief, and I've been playing with the new Tamio, which is harder to cast than this, so I think it's, it's imminently reasonable. The fact that it's black and white is kind of a curveball because you don't think of any vintage decks as being black and white, so to speak. Yeah. But Esper is a common color combination, right? Between Esper Mentor <laughs> and Esper Control, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of Esper going around, especially online. So, I do think the casting cost is reasonable. I do think she... We, we have to make the comparison to Jace the Mind Sculptor, though. We've already elucidated a handful of scenarios where she could be better than Jace the Mind Sculptor, but I just wonder, if from a deck construction standpoint, if anyone's going to really well, take Well,
1: Jace the thing. Mind Sculptor... Jace the Mind Sculptor isn't... W- I'm less excited about... Jace the Mind Sculptor does not Sorry, just provide card advantage. It also provides virtual card advantage, which is, you know, when you play Gush mm-hmm. and then Jace, I mean, that's just... it's It's far more than just one card. So, even if, you know, it's, it's been in, in play a turn. But, but... Yeah, true. Exactly. But she, she is she's, straight she, up... She's right off she's the bat. I would say that... Time you that minus two. She's probably... I, I, I'm going on a limb here, but I can certainly envision a deck where the kind of... Let's say your time horizon is more compressed, and you still want a Planeswalker she's the one who might get you right back in it more more quickly so yeah Hmm. very interesting
0: she's also more aggressive because of that minus one ability to lose life You, you you might consider okay so look at it this way you know how jace sometimes is in a creature deck like a mentor or a pyromancer deck it's it's bounce your blocker get in for damage you know next turn bounce your blocker again get in for more damage she does that just as well as jace does better in fact because it's not just bounce it's you know erase from existence for two turns and then her minus ability <laughs> can be used to right do damage right so if it's there could that's really interesting so, I think in those scenarios where you're making sort of a tempo play, where you're just using Jace as multiple on summons, she's just as good at that. Within reason, you, you do lose life for her zero ability, so there's scenarios when you're close to death that it wouldn't happen, but mostly she's, she's just as good as that. If you're trying to stay alive, she's slightly less good than Jace in the sense that I think I would rather return a creature to their hand than blink, because it implies they have to recast it. But at the same time, she can't be. If you're facing multiple creatures, Jace is frequently. Bounce one and then get killed by the other. She's never going to have that problem. So there's some give and take in that comparison. Played onto an empty board. I'm not convinced which one I'd rather <laughs> the, play against.
1: I I I completely I'm just sitting here thinking how brutal her her ability is off the bat. Yeah, no but doubt. T-
0: turn and Jace the Mind Sculptor is a backbreaking play, right? But but as soon yes. as your opponent makes that play, you're you're, you you switch modes. You're thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to fight this. Yeah, I,
1: that's one, I keep coming back to that. What the heck? That's I'm not what sure I'm thinking. I would rather face Jace than her on turn
0: one. Granted, that's a little less likely to happen because she's two different colors. So Lotus doesn't get you there by default, like it does with everything else. I mean, most everything else. But still, I mean, Lotus land still gets you there as long as one of those lands taps for these two colors. If you draw Lotus Basic <laughs> Island in your Esper deck and you have Kea, you're going to be really ticked off. <laughs> but that's a, that's not likely to happen.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, it's 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 one of the most difficult cards to evaluate because it's clearly ridiculously powerful, but we don't have any analogs. Um, and frankly, planeswalkers are still a relatively new card type for the vintage format. I mean, the first planeswalker was post 2008. You know, you know, so the first 15 years of this game didn't have planeswalkers, yeah. and and they're and they and was even playable in vintage.
0: And it was a while before more than one was even used. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, Tezzer was king of the roost for a long time, and then we had Jace the Mind Sculptor, and then we had Dak Faden, and now we have Little Jace. Liliana's seen a little bit of play, and there are a couple of others, you know, that have seen yeah. more marginal play. But, but this this one is it's a small family, and this one is vaulted near the top. I mean, it's still it's Just on p- pure metrics alone, the fact that it immediately generates card advantage, mm-hmm. its capacity to protect itself, its capacity to refill it, fuel itself, its versatility. I mean, the fact that it has four act- abilities. I mean, this is this is. I in the in the top, you know, three percent of the most powerful planeswalkers I've ever seen, probably more. I I, I yet and yet and yet mm-hmm. <laughs> we've no. never seen a white and black planeswalker. And <laughs> I think see play in vintage. And uh, four mana is not expensive. <laughs> no. Um but I think the price is worth it.
0: <clears throat> She's not blue, so she doesn't pitch to force, which is a minor thing. In terms of her playability but what it does suggest is that she is un- less likely to be appear in multiples so any deck that would run her is probably running just one that's my guess any <laughs> deck that would run her is probably running I, a mixture I mean, of her
1: well with in the honestly. caveat this is certainly would see play in those uh those what do you call it dark times type decks i mean like dead guy ale modern yeah <laughs> yeah
0: those decks that put up vanishingly Yeah, like those texts, they put in vanishingly small numbers, I agree. But if Gideon, ally of Zendikar, is playable in Vintage, then there's no way that K.O. isn't also... Uh,
1: It's it's also interesting that um, I'm also just envisioning situations where the blink ability is going to be really strategically critical. Uh, You know... It's it's very difficult for some decks to mount a, a lethal offense when when one of their linchpin creatures has been taken off the board for that that kind of duration. Um,
0: That's a good point. I mean, Thalia seems like the standard bearer for what you're talking about, right?
1: When the creatures come back, do they have summoning sickness when they phase back in? They would, yeah. If you blink one nuts. of your own
0: creatures, for example, it would not be able to attack the turn. That's turn.
1: interesting. You can also use it defensively to protect your own creatures. But but the fact that like for example your opponent tinkers up Blightsteel Colossus, you could blink it and basically do that, you know, four more times, preventing them from really ever making a lethal attack.
0: Well, you could do it for as yeah. long as your life all the time. <laughs>
1: Well, you can only get to do it four times. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a long time, right? In I'm sorry, game, zero. You're right. Zero. It's it's not. Well, no, no.
0: <laughs> the blink is the zero
1: ability. <laughs> that's crazy.
0: You could do it as many times as you can pay to life. That's that's how long you can do it. Yeah. That, which could be a
1: long time. That
0: could be.
2: Five
1: wow. Turns. This this strikes me as just a Brian 30. Kelly type card through and through. Is this something that goes into like an oath deck? Well. I was going to propose that we go match up by it's, magic and talk I, about what I, yeah, she I just don't do. think that I don't know how far that gets us because she's so she's so unique. I know. I mean, that would probably be the the appropriate way to do it, but So
0: so you brought up both, right? So she's a just like um oh, what was the card we just reviewed in Eldritch Moon about uh, <laughs> temporarily removing containment priests. <laughs> we talked about the fact that Oath would want to be able to deal with Containment Priest, and she does that uh, for that deck also.
1: That's interesting. That's so, interesting. Yeah, that's think, really interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that most
0: decks, most yeah. decks that would consider running a Jace would consider running her. The only exception I can think about that is Landstill.
1: <laughs> she she might get even better. The fact that she can remove a Prelate. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> but I, I do
0: think you're you're somewhat correct. I mean, in oath right one of the reasons you want jace is to yeah yeah to for the digging ability and she's pretty good at digging right she doesn't dig quite as fast as jace but she is more disruptive to your opponent in the process so it's give and take there
1: yeah i mean bouncing this is better than bouncing right when you bounce a containment priest to your opponent's hand they can just replay it this this thing deals with it and, and all the other things too like yeah, eidolon so and all that other stuff to prevent you from being, being targeted
0: yeah oh oh think about this her, her zero ability says, return that card to the battlefield. Under right, own
1: with at Oath, the beginning of you stack. Cookie. You can stack That's it.
0: That's a trigger that you <laughs> own. So if you had this
1: and Oath... Nuts. Yeah, you get to Oath Nuts. on the very next
0: <laughs> turn if you blink out their containment priest. Wow. I was thinking that you had to do some more work, but no, you get just next turn. You get to activate Oath and then... And then <laughs> put their, well, that's their it. I'm,
1: I'm playing Kelly Oath at Vintage Champs with this card. <laughs> Good luck winning. Good luck winning. Anyone, <laughs> this card's nuts. <laughs> no, no, I, I can't. But but but. Um, I mean, for people who fetishize card advantage and and situational advantages, this card just that's has relevant, them in spades. I, mean, I
0: think that's a decent use, sure. And I think this. Mm -hmm. And I think this fits well into the various Oath decks, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. it It was on the brain. Moat is what I meant. I think this overlaps very well with moat decks. Yeah. So any Esper kind of control deck that wanted to be a moat deck also, this is a good home because this shores up weaknesses to flying creatures and or if you're protected by your moat, it's just an alternate win condition. You know, Jace is an alternate win condition too, but he takes turns and turns. And this obviously takes turns and turns as well. I mean, in order to kill someone from 20 with her minus one ability, it takes a long time. (laughs) It gets there. It gets there. But every... But every fourth time, or every fifth time, you have to blink her instead. <laughs> so that's a lot of activation. Uh, but the odds are those moat decks have are going to have some flying creatures, so you can. this works in conjunction to speed up the clock. Also, it's kind of like a... Yeah. She, she kind of functions like a soft lock, too. If you get your opponent's hand empty, they only get to play one card a turn for the rest of the game, within reason. So I guess what I'm getting at is that there are just lots of different kinds of decks. you She's actually really good. Her minus two ability is also really good at any deck that's forcing discard in any kind of way. So if you're already a therapy deck, her minus ability becomes even more threatening in the sense that you can empty their hand faster. And then once you get to that point, she threatens kind of a soft lock. I mean, I say lock in the sense that you're just really limiting your opponent's options to fight back. Hmm. Well, I I think she's imminently playable. I don't... I think there's a lot of possible homes for her. I don't think she's going to be played in great quantities. I think she's a one-of in all these contexts we've talked about. <laughs> but that's that's mostly good enough for for Jace the Mind Sculptor, right? She could be a one-of in, in three or four different archetypes, which is enough to see her up in the 10 to 20 range if she's really that popular. You know, she's not she's not going to be quite as splashy as Snapcaster Mage was. But, uh, yeah. Yeah i want you to go first this time because i went first, oh god went first time, and, you, and you took
1: the over. <laughs> oh boy um i have a lot of faith in card advantage i have a lot mm-hmm. of faith in versatility um i don't have a lot of faith in white black <laughs> well,
0: but Esper is a real thing
1: no no it is it is um geez i i just four minute is a lot and i i don't know how you survive to get to this very easily um, um but once it hits, I, I think if this could be a turn two or three play, it could be very powerful. I just I don't know how good this is gonna be in a gush metagame but this card is is very what, powerful
0: when you say how good it's going to be what what do you mean by that i mean do you, do you mean that her well, her discard ability is limited or she's not as good yeah. as jace when you're
1: returning last your hand yeah i mean the fact that like you can gush into jace that's so much more powerful than gushing into this and then also gushing it, the, the, it, for opponents who play Gush they have going to have superfluous lands to discard so the discard ability won't be quite as as acute in terms of the pain it imposes so
0: that's a good that's a good point sure
1: Yeah, Yeah, Gush is kind of a Um, a counteracting minus
0: two ability, sure.
1: I think she's definitely going to see play. So I'm going to go on record. She's going to see play. I'm going to just... I don't don't know. I'm just going to say four.
0: I think that another good comparison would be Narset.
1: Yes, I think that's probably a good one.
0: Narset has put up one top eight this quarter and three total this year. I think it's better than Narset. And Gush mentor decks.
1: Yeah, there's another one that I saw some players playing. Isn't there like a red planeswalker that it's kind of red blue planeswalker that's five mana that's seen a little bit of play in Vintage? Which one's that? I remember seeing that at the previous Waterbury in 2014. Okay, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Red, I believe
0: red blue pla- the red blue planeswalkers yeah, are my... Ral Zarek, which probably not what you're talking about. Are Are you thinking about the God? Are you thinking about Terranos?
1: Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. The five mana god. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. Kairos needs to of Gods, play planeswalkers, lines, so... yeah. monarchs, and emperors. <laughs> Legends. <laughs> I know, right?
0: <laughs> well, so you're saying four, yeah?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go four. I think. I think this is just. I think this is good enough to see play in 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 Kelly Oath as Boy, a one. I think that's a
0: really good estimate is four
1: because it's just kind of a versatile fixer. I think it goes in place of one of the planeswalkers that they play in that deck.
0: They only really play Dak and
1: Jace, right? You and think the, they I just think, turn I think,
0: two Jace into one one and one.
1: I I do. I think, I think what we've just talked about makes this good enough, huh. and and it does other things like we just talked about, right? I mean,
0: well, Narset the Narset numbers are are awfully low, but not zero, and you think she's better than norset which i'll buy I'll, yeah I'll just a little bit more synergistic in the format so i'm going to take the under but i'm going to go with two like I welcome being wrong but we've got to move on because we've got to talk about leovold emissary of trust <laughs> for black green blue legendary creature elf advisor which i love each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn Whenever you, or a permanent you control, become the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, you may draw a card. 3-3. Three, three. This card slices and dices. This is pretty nuts. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's 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 half of a Spirit of the Labyrinth, but, you know, the good half. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> I, I joke, it's way better than half of a Spirit of the Labyrinth. <laughs> and, um, and it's also like Rain Academy Chancellor, which has kind of interesting kind of somewhat tongue in cheekly actually seen some play lately. (laughs) Primarily because of Rain's effect on Storm, which is comical. I specifically tendrils, I mean. But honestly, that's not really a thing. That's incidental. I do think that in this environment where bolt and plow and snuff have become very standard, that this ability of drawing a card for your opponent's removal is actually relevant and there's almost no deck in vintage that doesn't trigger one or both of these abilities so you, we can go match up by matchup, but let, let's get the diligence out of the way but clearly this mana cost is unprecedented you know this three these three colors in this combination there's no card that sees play at this mana cost mantis rider is a jessica guy of mana cost there aren't many things that are three designated i again i've been playing the new tamio she's bant plus one I do think this mana cost is especially achievable in this particular color combination, though, because as soon as you start talking about bug, you inevitably start talking about Deathrite Shaman, and Deathrite Shaman goes a long way to shoring up this mana cost. So I'm going to make an assumption that might not be 100%, but I'm going to be assuming by default Decks that play this card are also Deathrite Shaman decks.
1: A couple of sets ago, or somewhere in the recent past, didn't I predict a card that would see play in Bug? I don't remember whether it did or not. Do you recall what that card was?
0: Oh, jeez. Um, no, it was kind of of this not.
1: ilk. Yeah. That kind of it might have been a Forecaster even that I thought might see play. Um, but this is better right. than that. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> no,
0: I can't think of it either. But uh, we, we we reference Bug all the time in these set reviews, right? Because certain cards just play into that strategy. Right. This one. This one is not so much strategic in terms of the bug archetype. It's just two abilities that are super good in Vintage. Oh, right? yeah. Because Spirit of the Labyrinth has pretty firmly established itself as a player in the format. In hate bears kind of, Humans, kind of, and in recently in Spirits, it's just it's demonstrated that it's good enough. And this effect is w- even way more powerful than that. It, it can't be understated that Spirit of the Labyrinth narrows your options from a deck construction standpoint such that you can't be a Gush deck in a Spirit of the Labyrinth deck. But with Leovold, you can. In fact, you're encouraged to draw all the cards you want and just stifle your opponent. And then on top of that, is if they go to Plow Leovold, you just draw a card to replace him. You know? This
1: set this set is going to massively change Vintage. I
0: feel like... I don't know about Massive, but it's got multiple, multiple playable cards. Yeah. Um, so, the boy, it's funny that they put this in Bug 2 from a Vintage context because bug has historically been the deck that had the hardest time fighting gush it's the deck that's been almost pushed out because of gush in terms yeah. of the other it's, the, it's the
1: Gush. It's, it's the deck that suffered the most yeah because with the and rise so, of token token effects yep
0: yeah and so this is this is just a huge this is a huge uptick for it's Punk, huge
1: it's a turn to play it's protectable it's hard to remove because it's kind of like Mr Grimora like that it's like as soon as they try and target it right. you can draw an answer right
0: when, when they go to remove it you're getting value anyway so oh geez i just so i don't think this only goes in bug i think this can go in multicolor control decks that might be three or four or five colors also because it's just that good of a hoser against gush in my opinion that it makes those kind of decks more attractive you know those keeper style decks that they love in europe death rate control that's the four and five colors i think it also fits in those kind of decks let's talk about matchups though against popular decks these abilities, let's talk about especially the second one, but we started with Pyro Gush last time. How about we start there again? Yeah, sure. Because obviously this cuts Gush off, meaning they can't Gush on their turn. They could Gush on your turn for plus one card. This cuts off Preordain, Ponder, Gitaxian Probe. I mean, think about that. We just listed about 12 cards in that deck that this cuts off. Oh, in addition to Treasure Cruise and Ancestral Recall. So easily 12 to 14 cards that basically can't be cast within reason. That's insane. (laughs) Think about that. That's a bigger ratio than we were getting with the Prelate. (laughs) And, on top of all of that, if they go to bolt this or snuff out, you draw a card. And you get to draw the card before you decide whether or not their bolt or snuff resolves. So some of the times, you're just going to draw into your mental Mista and say, oh look, now that bolt doesn't resolve. And, and on top of all of that, against Grixis Pyro to begin with, specifically, I mean... You draw off of their therapies. Whenever they target you, you draw off therapy. That's just it's just bonkers. This has such a powerful impact in, against that
1: deck. Yeah, this card is ridiculously powerful. Um, I think I think you're right. I think it's a card that just shuts down these decks. These cantrip and gush-fuel decks, it just shuts them down, just shuts them off. And the fact that any attempt they have to remove it gives you more opportunity to draw protection. Like every time they draw a play a plow, you might just draw... You might just draw a, a misstep or a force. Yep. Yeah.
0: Oh, and it makes force of will to protect this less painful too, right? You because. just get the the one card that you that you the extra card you use to pitch to cast this, so it's just that much better for force and for misstep.
1: Right, because you're because it's drawing cards.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could see the format having to respect bug a lot more just because of this card.
1: I think what this these this set does is it reinforces the trend towards the necessity of creature removal. <laughs> I don't know. To what extent, you know, whether we're talking about more shriekma or whatever, but but you've got to have answers, right? I mean, these cards just shut down games and destroy decks if you don't have answers, right?
0: Now there are some matchups where this is less relevant, of course. Workshops is probably the one; they aren't drawing extra cards and they aren't targeting you very much. The one exception I can think of is trike. This makes trike a really bad removal card. <laughs> <laughs> Would you trike this away? Oh I my mean,
1: god! I, I, it's says to recall your so. opponent?
0: <laughs> right? Uh, no, so I mean, so there's a hilariously bad interaction with Trike. But aside from that, the only other thing I could think of is if they had Dismember out of the side... Oh, Thought Not Seer. You draw a card for Thought Not Seer. Now, uh, Leovold gets really tricky when you make your opponent draw cards, too, though. So there's not a lot of things with Symmetrical Draw in Vintage aside from the draw sevens. But it could be that if you could get enough Leovolds into a deck, that certain symmetrical draw type effects become more attractive. Most of the ones I can think of are just terrible, though. I'm thinking of the Arcane Denials of the world. I mean, that card was only somewhat playable as kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing in a Consecrated Sphinx deck last year. And Arcane Denial has a whole bunch of emotional baggage from the community. (laughs) But uh, can you think of another symmetrical draw effect that we don't play right now, but would be eminently playable. Oh, we had a yes. discussion about Miko Koro just versus th- the Gaia Reach Sanitarium.
1: I was just going to say that. Yep.
0: Yeah. Oh, and this card still functions with Fade fading the way Notion Thief does also. Of course. So, that's pointing yep. out. so you Bring them, on. Yeah. I mean, now, you DAC your
1: opponent, they have to discard... They'll draw one and then discard two, right? They'll
0: draw one and discard
1: two, yeah. It's not quite as
0: good as Notion Thief, but still <clears throat> still a relevant interaction. Yeah, the Gaia Reach Sanitarium is is, you know, you draw and discard, and they just discard when you use it on their end step. So there's that. Or, or, or Miko Koro, of course. I'm trying to think of another symmetrical draw effect. There's lots of bad ones. There's, you know, How- Howling Minds and stuff, but none of that's vintage playable.
1: Yeah. The fact that this is only three mana, as opposed to Notion Thief being four, I think is, is actually quite significant, especially in Gush decks.
0: Sure, sure. that's That's definitely true. Yeah, in fact... The the three mana you, you can play this off of a, a trop and an underground.
1: Yes, thanks to Gush. Exactly, which is definitely this card, going to happen. And this card is brutal in the Gush Mirror. I mean, just brutal. Oh yeah.
0: Oh, this card is really super devastating against Landstill.
1: Good <laughs> really Every card in their deck says, "I don't want to play it anymore." <laughs> the the only thing that can deal with it is then explosive.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. This card's super this card's super good against Jace the Mindscape. It's a
1: supreme verdict. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. Yeah.
0: Jace the Sculptor hates this card. They <laughs> he re- didn't give you plus he re- 1 card just about he, he
1: really does hate this guy.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I wonder how many times people are going to play Jace into this and then realize, "Oh, I guess I'll just 2." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's comical. And of course, Dak Faden. So Jace and Dax. You know what? The simple fact that this hoses the two most commonly played Planeswalkers in the format should say enough right there. Yep. Right? You can't put this into Oath of course, but any other deck that could cast this, like Bug Aggro or Bug Control or just you know 3-5 th- to five color control it's just the fact that it gives you a leg up against Gush and the two best Planeswalkers in the format is huge. Your opponent has to remove it and when they do you're still net- netting card advantage. And I love the way this card interacts with Misdirection, too. Even though Misdirection is probably still unplayable. But I I don't know. I mean, are we getting to the point where Misdirection's playable again?
1: (laughs) Because of...
0: Well, because of all the targeted removal, because all the plows going around. Plow and Snuff and Bolt and Force of Will and, to a rare degree, Mental Misstep. I mean, the average blue deck has... Going on ten misdirectable spells now.
1: I think we might be at peak playability for, for just peak um, card pool playability in vintage. Like there are more yeah. cards playable than like ever before right now.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. Very interesting. <sighs> I so the problem we have with evaluating a card that makes a otherwise dead deck good again is that said dead deck is dead. <laughs> Meaning we don't <laughs> we don't have a good threshold for citing the number of appearances of bug fish, for example, when there's just no well, bugfish.
1: Well we do know we do know that the, the abilities that he has, the two abilities he has, are not entirely novel. I mean they exist in magic and they they see play have seen vintage play and you put them together into one card, I think you've got an eminently very powerful, very forceful card. This card will be appearing at the Vintage Championship in non trivial numbers. The only question is will it be in the top eight?
0: Well, okay. So to use your point as a metric, let's specifically at Spirited Labyrinth, which in paper, according to TC decks, has put up six top eights in the last quarter. So yeah. there's a decent. Metric, yeah, I mean right? the difference unfortunately, is unfortunately this goes in totally different, different decks. decks. Exactly. Yeah, sadly, but it's a, it's a, but it's an indicator of the relevancy of this first ability, even though his first ability is way better.
1: Well, why don't we start putting our money where our mouth is? Why don't you make a prediction?
0: Uh, I'm gonna go. I think this is going to be very popular with people because it hoses Gush, in particular. Yeah. Uh, and I think this will lead to a resurgence of death Rite decks, or at least Bug-style decks, you know. Maybe four colors, but uh, I'm going to go... I'm going to go six.
1: Does this thing also... You know what, that's exactly what I was going to predict. I'm shocked that you said six. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. No. Uh I think you might have well, pri- you might have primed us both by saying six uh, spirit labyrinths, but um, <laughs> there, there's a but precedent for us
0: picking the same number. You know, there's no rule that says we have to di- true, disagree. True.
1: Let me let me just ask though. Um, actually, it slipped my mind. The question. Was there was another
0: comparison you wanted to make.
1: I honestly don't remember. When you said six, you completely threw me off my train of thought. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry.
0: Well, I, I I will I will add in another indicator, and that is deathrite shaman
1: appearances are at five. Interesting. When are we actually going to be counting this? You said after the Vented Championship, but when?
0: Well, we'll try to do it three months from now, because that's okay. basically the cycle we're on for our report cards. We're just going to have to do it in a show that's not another set review.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: so we'll try to make the metric the same as other sets.
1: Yeah, this card's nutty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's also interesting that, and we didn't even talk about this, but if your opponent, your opponent plays Cabal Therapy on you, you get to draw a card? Yeah, um, I mentioned it's... that on the pyro. Oh, that's true. You did. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's this is this isn't.
0: But it's it's funny how this undoes the inherent card advantage of therapy plus pyromancer, right? Right. Because it's kind of like a draw. It's kind of like plus two cards when you whenever you play double therapy, and this completely undoes that. Well. Yeah, Brix's pyromancer is doing really good right now. This card just wrecks that deck in every direction well it has to be
1: this card has to be picked off immediately and yet picking it yeah. off is very difficult right I mean I can imagine a situation where you just can't remove it and then you can't win as a pyromancer player if that's you
0: could, kind of what I was getting at yeah, yeah. is that you, you Gitaxian Probe oh my is god is the worst card in the world <laughs> yeah. it changed, it's like having Notion Deep out for Gataxian Probe oh unbelievably good that's so funny <clears throat>
1: well predicting uh, prediction um, I'm going to go six as well
0: okay okay not unprecedented. I am very excited to see the results of these first four cards. The last two we've got here are slightly less exciting, slightly, but still relevant. We need to talk about Subterranean Tremors, which is an awesome name. It's X-Red, sorcery. Subterranean Tremors deals X damage to each creature without flying. If X is four or more, destroy all artifacts. If X is eight or more, put an eight-eight red lizard creature token onto the battlefield. So just X damage to all creatures without flying. Earthquake is not actually a playable vintage card, but that's mostly I think because we have more efficient der- derivations, right? Yeah. L- like, um, well, if we were recently got Toxic Deluge too, which is a which is a monkey in the wrench for Earthquake. The last time Earthquake made a top eight was in 2015. But I think now that now that I think about it, yeah, I was just thinking because JP Kohler had it in the sideboard of his NYSE Open Three deck. I remember that very specifically. His Blue Moon deck had Rolling Earthquake. I was I was going sideboard. to bring up
1: Rolling Earthquake because yeah. it, it hits creatures with flying because it, it, it the caveat there is horsemanship. Horsemanship, yeah. yeah.
0: But then we've got the pyro the pyroclasms and the. Uh, give me another one, Volcanic Fallouts. I mean, there's lots of derivations of this. So regular Earthquake doesn't see much play anymore. But hitting non-flying creatures is especially relevant.
1: Yeah, this also has the non-flying exemption. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it still still hits Monks and Mentors and Pyromancers, but it misses some of the key flyers. Still relevant, though, but, of course, the reason this card is even in the conversation is because if X is four or more, destroy all artifacts. Now, paying a five-mana non-creature spell against workshops is hard. There's a reason Ingot Shurer is rarely cast for its full mana cost. But the fact that this works well in the early game against Ravager, and then potentially devastating in the late game, I think is intriguing. And the fact that it's not just a dedicated anti shock card means that this card is, has some versatility in sideboards. You can bring it in against Eldrazi, you can bring it in against Pyromancer, you can bring it in against Mentor. It comes in against... 60 or 70 percent of the metagame but it's not it's not a it's not a perfect answer in any one of those contexts it's just good
1: yeah i don't think this is going to see play but i i do i do appreciate you bringing it to our attention and our audience's attention i do
0: think that it it can't circum it can't replace in for example in sideboards it can't replace dedicated artifact removal but i do think that a couple of decks in the grand scheme of things could add one to their sideboard plan because it's so flexible i don't think yeah because rolling earthquake has put up no appearances in 2016 i don't think the, the pump is primed for this card yeah me neither. i think I'm just gonna. i think i'm just gonna go zero yeah me too there it, it's there, not it's not that hard to evaluate but i think people should keep it on their radar
1: no i just want to point out a couple other things in this set that, that people should just know on their radar first of all berserk is printed in this set as is yeah. Burning Wish, which is pretty yeah. sweet, which has never been reprinted to my knowledge, except online, right? Yeah. And true. and then there's a uh, a new card that's a functional reprint, Exotic Orchard, right?
0: Uh, no, that's not a new card. Oh. That, that's the reprint, yep. That's the straight reprint.
1: Isn't that Reflecting Pool? From a Lara block. Yeah, the Reflecting Pool. Oh, that's right. It is the Reflecting Pool variant, yep. For, for, yeah, for your opponent. Yeah. yeah, okay. And then it... And,
0: my, and minor correction, Burning Wish was reprinted as a Judge... Gift, but it's never going to be reprinted in a, a set that people can buy.
1: <laughs> someone, someone said uh, which I haven't seen it, but someone said Cunning Wish is also in this set. So the, uh, if that,
0: if true, that's news to me inside of the last twelve hours.
1: So then they'll have the the um, joy of being able to Cunning Wish for Berserk again. <laughs> <laughs> love it,
0: love it. All right, we have one more on the docket, and it is Recruiter well, of the Guard.
1: This is just a, a straight reprint of. The other recruiter from
0: It's to Portal it Recon variation recruiter. it's white. Recruiter, and it checks for toughness, whereas Imperial Recruiter checks for power. Got it. So it's like a color shifted Imperial Recruiter except it's toughness and not power.
1: So what what is that what does that get what does that give us instead? Uh,
0: the, I mean the difference is very slim, right? Yeah. This I, I could think of two examples that uh, this can't get that recruiter does, and the biggest one is painter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the primary use for Imperial Recruiter in Legacy is to get Painter Servant, which this card cannot
1: get. Well, the main There's also The main combo we used in Legacy was the Aluren deck like 10 years ago.
0: Uh that's right. And this also can't get all the pieces in that deck, most notably the the Phantom, the Phantasm I mean.
1: Yeah, the Dream, whatever that. Dreamstalker. Uh, sorry,
0: Dreamstalker that's the name of the one. Yeah, I can't get Dreamstalker. Uh but the simple truth is is that if you're putting this into Aluren, you're probably doing it in addition to an Imperial Recruiter. So this does still get you to the end of the combo. You just have to go through an Imperial Recruiter to get there. <laughs> hmm. So it, th- there was a big spike in the cost of Aluren when this was previewed, of course, because people were just hedging as to whether or not Aluren got more playable because it had twice as many recruiters. And I think the short answer is no. That, that wasn't the thing that was keeping that deck from playability. <laughs> hmm. But in a Vintage context, though, Imperial Recruiter sees next to no play in vintage it hasn't made a top eight in 2016 even when it did it was in rogue decks mostly the only reason this card stands out though is because it's white right yeah because there's been this huge um uptick in playability in white creatures and hate bears decks but the the notion the notion that you would pay three mana to search your deck for a key hate bear is no. probably antiquated
1: at this point Definitely I agree
0: Well and we also have access to Green Sun Zenith which can't get the same set of creatures but plays a very similar role and much better Do you think this one is just completely out- outmoded
1: I don't think it's outmoded I just think that it's never really seen play in vintage in the first place So no. I, Okay I mean I'm glad I'm glad they're printing variants of these kinds of cards for other formats if nothing else and Conspiracy looks like a very fascinating set but I think yeah, we've got yeah. here three very solid vintage cards. Some that have v- that I think have a very high ceiling. In I think fact, you mean four. Yeah, I'm sorry, four, yeah. I think all yeah. four the four main cards we re- re- uh, reviewed, I think all of them are vintage playable. I think three of them in particular have extremely high ceilings and the floors aren't that I don't think they're that trap doors. I don't think they're in the basement. <laughs> I mean, I think Yeah. I think that they're they're all going to see I think I would be very surprised if, in particular, Santam Prelate and Kaya, I'm sorry, uh, the first and the fourth card don't see play. Very surprised, and I think Daredi and I think Kaya has an enormously high ceiling. I just don't. Yeah. I, I also think Doretti is just a really solid, cre- solid uh, card. So.
0: Yeah, I I would be very surprised if we don't see at least three out of the
1: four of these exactly. Yeah, in, in the t- next in the next two months, and maybe a champs. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Kevin, last weekend was the Mana Open 17, mm-hmm. also known as the Waterbury, and you and I are... Very familiar with Waterberries. They've been some of the best tournaments we've ever played in. Definitely.
0: And we had Ray. And on our in show fact, for an we interview.
1: interviewed the. <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll certainly dig up that episode. But we did a wonderful interview with Ray Robillard, who was the TO of the Waterberries. Probably last year was yeah. it? Maybe two years ago. It was about a year, year and a half ago, yeah. And the the last Waterberry, the Mediterranean sixteen, was in two thousand and. 14. So it's been two, year, two years since he's held one of these, and I was very happy to hear that 100 and what was it, 26 yeah. six players showed up to, to compete in these events. And the it's it's awesome. I mean, Ray Robillard is one of the pioneers of big, large-scale regional uh, type one and vintage tournaments. And part of what he did was he really focused on community. In our interview, I think that comes out that he he doesn't just make it a tournament. He makes it an experience. And the experience means community, it means a sense of camaraderie, of fun, he has magic trivia, he has magic, you know, all kinds of side events and games and awards, and it's it's just a, a total experience. I would have loved to have gone, but he didn't really give me much notice. <laughs> he announced it like two months ago, and I, I just had too much already arranged. Um, I need you know, a little bit more notice than that, but uh, to travel, you know, across the country um, for magic, but... <laughs> I would have loved to have gone, but we—we. We, it looks like it was an amazing tournament, and the results are out. We have a complete metagame breakdown. We have all the great uh, uh, data analysis by the Ryan Eberhardt, and, and, and uh, I believe Matthew Murray helped out with here. We're going to go through it, but I want to say that what's striking about this tournament, Kevin, is how much the result looks like the NYSE.
0: Isn't it funny? <laughs> when you put a whole bunch of people together out in the, on the Northeast like that, how the results just look so similar. <laughs>
1: it It's it's crazy. It, it's it's almost a complete mapping. And, and you know, what's interesting to me is that when you have tournament results that reinforce themselves like that, you kind of get these, you know, when I do these history of vintage articles, and what I do is I'll often say that the four kind of tentpole tournaments for a year, are usually, like it used to be, like the Doomsday event in Italy, the Bazaar of Moxon the Vintage Championship and then the Waterbury, mm-hmm. right? And and these days the American Ten events are the NYSE, the Waterbury, and the Vintage Championship at Eternal Weekend, and of course the monthly Magic Onlines, which are not as large, but but um, the NYS, the fact that the NYSE, and the Waterbury look so similar suggests that we may be due for a very similar Vintage Championship or. Maybe this new set, Conspiracy, and some quick metagame changes are going to produce some really rapid metagame evolution. But that's what we're going to discuss here. But let's start by just doing a quick metagame breakdown. I'm going to do that quickly, and then we're going to dive into the top 8 and possibly 16 deck lists. Okay? Sounds good. Let's do it. So, first of all, out of 126 players, just like the NYSE, the most popular archetype, so to speak, were Gush decks. And Gush decks are... Perhaps overly broadly defined to include not just the token strategies and not just, you know, the Delver strategies, but also Doomsday, Combo, Gush Bond decks, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. Gush decks in the NYSE were about a third of the metagame. Here, they fell to a, in my opinion, far more reasonable 28%. Uh, so they've gone below that, clearly gone below that 30% threshold. The the next most popular strategy in the field is workshops. <laughs> at night there are 19 workshop decks at 15% of the metagame. Uh, and then right behind that i, I were combo and Eldrazi. But let me start with Eldrazi. There were 13 Eldrazi decks, or 10% of the metagame. And we'll break that down in a second. But if you add the Eldrazi decks and you add the shop decks, then once again they equal the number of Gush decks. So Aldrazi is doing really well in terms of metagame representation, as is Shops. As I said, Combo was 11—it was actually 11.9% of the metagame, 15 decks in the field. So you've got here Gush at 28%, Shops at 15%, Combo at 12%, and Aldrazi at 10.3%. So you have four different archetypes at more than 10%. Mm-hmm. And then behind that, Dredge was 7%, Big Blue was 7%, Hard Control was 6%, Oath is 7%, and then Other was 7%. I'll just break it down a little bit more here for us. The, uh, Ravager thought not seer shop deck was most of the shop decks, uh, at 12% of the metagame by itself. Um, the, uh, white Eldra, there were nine white Eldrazi and four tri- Eldrazi tribal, meaning I think Jaco Eldrazi, right? Mm-hmm. So there were actually four Jaco Eldrazi decks at 3% of the overall field. Um, in terms of the Gush breakdown, interesting to note that Pyromancer has surged. Mentor decks were were 13.5% of the field. Pyromancer decks were 11.1%. So Gush decks have split mm-hmm. into sort of Mentor in Pyromancer with some Pyromancers into the and then on the other hand Grixis Pyromancer. So the metagame continues to evolve in that direction. So um, yeah, I mean it's a I'd say a pretty diverse field. Uh, lots of Thorn decks, lots of Gush decks, lots of Shop decks, uh, a a really strong representation of combo, and then a fair amount of Oath, Dredge, and Control decks, really. So Mm -hmm. out of all of that, what do we have? (laughs) (laughs) The winning deck, just like the NYSE, was Ravager Shops. Hmm. Uh, The difference was it was Will Magrin, who also won the 2014 Waterbury. Mm-hmm. So he is back-to-back winner of this tournament. Uh, and in ninth place, I'm going to jump to ninth, was Montolio. Yep. So Montolio started out 5-1, and one, and he had a win-and-in, and he lost a, a Shop's Mirror to Nick DeJean, and he made ninth place. So Montolio, <laughs> he won about Power 9 event a couple months ago. He won the NYSE 4. Then the following month, I think he got ninth place at a Power 9 event and now he gets ninth place here. <laughs> so so uh, Ravager Shops getting first place is a, a, a total repeat. And then also in a repeat of the NYSE, second place was Grixis Therapy by Craig Maisley. Um We can get into some of the specifics in the decks, but I just want to share quickly the rest of the top 16. Kevin, unless you'd rather do look at the decks deck by deck. No, go ahead. Third place was... Yeah, yeah, third place third place was Jeskai Mentor. Fourth place was Doomsday. Very surprising and impressive. Mm-hmm. Fifth place was Eldrazi Shops. Sixth place was another Ravager Shops. <laughs> Seventh place was a Jeskai Mentor. Eighth place was Eldrazi Tribal, so Jayco Eldrazi, once again showing it can make top eight. Ninth place was Shops, Montolio. Tenth was Ravager Shops again. So in the top ten, we had... Uh, First, fifth, sixth, ninth, and tenth on Ravager Shops, and eighth in in Eldrazi. Uh, I'd, I'd like, so I'd like
0: to point out that the, really the only distinction between Ravager Shops and Eldrazi Shops is is the presence of Reality Smasher. That's fair. They're, they're
1: That's otherwise fair.
0: they're otherwise the same deck. I mean, this Eldrazi Shops has Ravagers, <laughs> and yes, the thought and they all both have Thought Knots here. So really, it's just kind of how many Eldrazi do you have.
1: Right, and in the tenth place that player Keith Seals, I believe he won the NYSE two yeah. with shops, so he's no stranger to shops. In eleventh place was J.P. Kohler playing a very innovative Helm Oath deck <laughs> that has Leyline of the Void and Helm of Obedience in an Oath combo deck. Mm-hmm. So it's a little like two card Monty, except uh, you know two different combos. Right. Twelfth place was Grixis Therapy piloted by Rich Shea. And then in thirteenth place, we thirteenth place we have, and fourteenth place were White Eldrazi. We had uh, in fourteenth place was Andy Prabasco who made top eight at the NYSE. And then fifteenth and sixteenth were both Ravager Shops. So Ravager Shops and Shops overall did extraordinarily well in this event. I mean, if you're counting at home, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Shop decks in this top 16, mm-hmm. and then three more Eldrazi decks on top of that. So 10 shop slash Eldrazi decks in this top 16. Pretty yeah, insane.
0: It is, and one of the metrics which we've been blessed with being able to cite recently, thanks to the good work of Ryan Everhart and and Matt Murray, is the the metagame uh, win percentage. And it's no surprise that Shops has 65 and a half percent win rate against the field. And Eldrazi yeah. was just on its tail at
1: 60.8. Just like with the NYSE. Yeah, just but... to toggle, toggle the NYSE, Chop's win percentage against the field there was 68%, yeah. and Eldrazi was was 59%. And so it's are, almost identical. And those are the
0: top two win rates in the whole metagame.
1: One of the narratives, though, that emerged in the last couple of months, especially after the NYSE, was that people had found out a way to combat Eldrazi and Chops. Well, not so fast, right? The gush decks seem to have surged back, but this suggests that that wave has broken yet again.
0: Yeah, I can't help but think that this tournament's results are a reaction to how much Pyromancer and Grixis Pyromancer have stood out in the last few months online. And I think people were observing that and reacting to it successfully.
1: Yeah. I think you're exactly right. I th- and this just shows how dynamic the evolution of the vintage metagame is, right? Definitely. Um, it, critically, so just to continue down the list, the next best performing deck, the third best performing deck behind Shops and Eldrazi, was Oath of Druids, mm-hmm. with a 55% win percentage. This is one Yet, of those
0: refrains that you and I keep coming back to: is how well Oath is doing. Does on in, paper? In paper. On,
1: right. Yeah. Right. Its performance in paper definitely exceeds its performance in online and and for obvious reasons I think at this point. Um the next the next best performing deck is is they're all below 50% win percentage. And we should just note that the larger the representation is of a deck in the field, the more it will naturally gravitate towards 50%. Although again, there were 19 shop decks and they had a 66% win percentage. So that I don't want to overstate that either, right? Mm-hmm. Um but the next best-performing deck after that was Hard Control at 48% percentage, followed by Gush Decks, the fourth best-performing archetype, at 47.8%. Below Once again, percent again. again. Again, below 50%, and again, the fourth or fifth yeah. best-performing archetype overall. Um, everything else was below that, and I don't think we need to get too much into. But right. I, I do want to pause and just note a couple things. The there This time, no Dredge made top eight dredge in fact did pretty poorly it seems yeah it's strange um, uh,
0: what nine players so seven percent not a large showing but thirty percent thirty nine percent
1: win and you look at the overall performance dredge had a forty two forty three percent win percentage against against uh shops 46 percent percentage win against gush 50 percent in the mirror obviously 20 uh-huh. percent against big blue uh, 0% against Hard Control. I'm sure there's a very small sample size there. Yeah. 50% against Combo, 50% against Oath, and 40% against Other. What's most notable there is that it's not a bad... It's It, it does pretty well against Gush. I mean, it almost has a 50% win percentage against Gush. Uh, but it, it obviously well, the, did worse everywhere else. I think the
0: narrative from the NYSE is Shops kind of corrected its Dredge matchup since Interesting. that event.
1: Interesting. Well, that's, that's
0: this this sets a really interesting stage. I mean, for the metagame going into champs, because because shops were definitely uh, there's just different. We have different results depending on who you ask and when you ask about how good shops is doing in the metagame. Because these big northeast events have consistently had shops be not the most represented deck, but have the best uh, win percentage against the field. But the dailies and the Magic Online results are not mirroring that. No. So there's this definite divide between... I mean, we we always talk about it, but there's this continued divide between paper and Magic Online's results and the games. Right, right. And they point to different things.
1: I I wanted to also just point out a couple other little stats just for the stat heads amongst us. Um, The Gush decks Mm -hmm. by themselves had a 38% win percentage against Shops. They had a... Obviously, a slightly above average, uh, average win percentage against Dredge. But according to the data here, they did poorly against Hard Control with only 33% win percentage. And consistently with what we've seen elsewhere, in paper, it only had a 42%, 43% win percentage against Oath. So against okay. Oath, Oath, again, appears to be favored against, against Gush. Um, I'm not sure, again, how you position yourself among all these different competing forces, <laughs> But I think being informed is the is the most important foundation.
0: There's some some past historical trends that are being bucked here as well, and I want to point to Oath versus Shops. Oath only went thirty three and a third percent against Shops in this event. That is that's bad. That's a that's a major uh, mark against Oath if you can't get your Oath deck to reliably beat Shops, because you know historically historical precedent showed us that Oath was a a good choice but it's just wow these results are not not promising for oath and yet oath continues to win other major events in paper across the world Ooh, it's going to be really interesting to see which of these narratives comes out on top at champs because we've got some we've got some some budding of heads of results here
1: yeah it's it's not clear how this will be resolved
0: it, it what is clear to me though is that you know the death of workshops was uh, you know the death knell was premature. <laughs> to say the is least, still, is still performing quite well in the environment. And despite the preponderance of the participants in the metagame preferring Gush, uh, workshops are still just was the best performer, not it. close. Yeah. yeah, just killing it, and they continue to.
1: And Eldrazi continues to be a, it's the it's it's amazing run.
0: Yeah, huh. it's it's really interesting because our community, the vintage community. Is is filled more so than ever before, I think, with uh, divisiveness and a little bit of vitriol about <laughs> what the what even the best deck in the format is, and the banned and restricted policy and how that has shaped things. And it's just so funny because we ostensibly have two best decks in the format of a sort. And it's not just one deck, but we Shop, the shops, shops
1: versus White Eldrazi. <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Shops versus Gush, though, continues to be the narrative in the community. Yes. And... It's so funny that, that you know, thirty percent of the room will show up with Gush and, and have a lower than fifty percent win percentage <laughs> consistently. So there's there's just some there's some misinformation going on in some way, but it's kinda hard to point to what's right. Yes. <laughs> but all Dave, we can do is arm you with the information.
1: The the deck lists are all available for the top sixteen, so we'll post those in the show notes. But Kevin, is there anything in particular you want to point out about any of these decks or adjustments that people have made. A couple of things stood out to me, but I wanted to give you an opportunity first. Well,
0: I, I just want to point
1: at how Will's winning deck is so...
0: It looks so standardized at this
1: point. Yes. This yeah. looks
0: like the prototypical Ravager Thought Not workshop list. its It just seems t- tuned to a fine point.
1: I completely agree. Uh, the, the, the tweaks that we're talking about are so minor, if at all. I mean, yeah. you know, like, the second place deck having two main deck snuff outs, um, you know, as opposed to, like, one. The yeah. Andy Probasco's uh, Dahlia deck having uh, Battlefield Forge with tear in the sideboard is a very minute tweak. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I didn't really see big, besides uh, J.P. Kohler's very innovative Helm Oath deck, I didn't really see anything <laughs> that stood out to me as particularly noteworthy.
0: Well, I want to point to... There's more than just the wear tear in Andy's sideboard. There's also three sulfur elementals and three... Oh, yes. Tongue Very good point. The re- <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, Andy I, I meant went to pretty deep red. with red. Yeah, I meant to emphasize yeah. The red, yeah. <laughs> he went pretty deep with red in this Eldrazi list. So uh, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. But I agree with your summation, though, that a lot of this is really just... These are finely tuned standard representations of these lists. Um The third place Jeskai Mentor list, for example, is four Mentors and two Pyromancers and one Snapcaster, which has become a very standard configuration. Uh, He does have Supreme Verdict in the main, which I think is a a nod to Eldrazi, but otherwise uh, not too much of note.
1: Well, but there are decks in Vintage of Note, so let's let's transition to some of the really cool decks that have actually emerged just in the last couple of weeks.
0: So in, in the Magic Online dailies, there's been a mixture of tried-and-true and true and new <laughs> <really> and exciting. <laughs> the, uh, uh, just to summarize the tried-and-true front, in, in June and July, the, 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 most, the single most popular deck was Mentor, but there was a big uptick in Pyromancer. Uh, for, for reference, leading up to Lodestone's restriction and then for the month afterward, Pyromancer was a 0% deck, mostly in january through april it had one uh one three one or better appearance in a daily and same and and then in shortly after the loadstone restriction it it put up three then it's it kind of creeped up to the 12 or 13 percent range in june and july which is really noteworthy it was and it was stealing market share from mentor so i that's part of the trend that i think people might have been reacting to given the success of workshops lately is this pyromancer has been really preying on Mentor, I think, online. But then there's also been a bit of an uptick in terms of... So the shop's percentage, though, has been a really up and down story. Pre-restriction, it was up around 20-25%. Post-restriction, it dropped down all the way to 6% in June and then back up to 13 in July. So it's been hovering at about half of what it was pre-restriction. So these trends, like I said before, they tell a bit of a conflicting story in terms of best decks, so to speak. Gush is still a large portion of the online metagame, between 30 and 40%. Workshops are still present, but they they, they won't return to where they were pre-restriction. There's less than 20% now. And then the other decks are just kind of jockeying for position. Eldrazi has a good month and then a low month it put up a goose egg in July <laughs> and then, and it's back to 13% through halfway through August so it's yeah the, the, the shakeup though could be coming right because well, yeah they're, they're,
1: because of some of the cards that we've, we've talked about as well as the metagame dynamics I mean you're describing you're describing right. a kind of a sinusoidal you know up and down uh, you know, waveform function, right? I mean, you you, you have mentor being surging yeah. post restriction of golem to fifty percent, then dropping, 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 then going back up in July, and in August it's it's way 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 down. In fact, it's the least we've ever seen of mentor. Almost yeah, and, this entire and year, Pyromancer
0: right? is chewing into that, right? So far, I mean, it's this it's, month. It's like August, like ten percent of the metagame, and mentor 50 fifty fifty. They're both at eleven percent of the metagame, which is up for Pyro, right? I mean, that's not an up, uptick for them, but way down for Mentor.
1: And, and for both so, of those who have de- declined, means that Gush has also declined. I don't know, what's the percentage of Gush overall in August? Well, if you combine those two, far. it's
0: 22%. Yeah, and then if you add in some of the smaller things, it goes up by a few percent, but that's that's the lowest Gush. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's pre-restriction levels for Gush online. But let's not forget that That's way that Mentor down. plus Pyromancer in March was 13%. And <laughs> in 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 February was seven percent. I mean, this is that right, yeah. the right? Gush in online has been dramatically impacted, yeah, <laughs> by the restriction. But it's still it's not done reacting yet. <clears throat> but Eldritch Moon all over the place is, is has been an X factor. Those of you who are, are fans of VSL and may have watched the playoffs that have started this week have maybe already seen Rich Shea's still list. <laughs> Which is, it's got a great title, and it's really cool. But it is more or less just Blue-White-Landstill with Emrakul, cool, which is which is cool.
1: Yeah, he 4 a Daily on August 14th with it. And he has deck list, like you said, it's, it's 2 Jace, 2 Emrakul, the Promised End, 2 Snapcaster Mage, Council's Verdict, Supreme Verdict, Time lock, Treasure Cruise, Ancestral Brainstorm, Dig Through Time, Force of Will, Mana Drain, Misstep, My, 1 Mind Break Trap, 3 Plow, mm-hmm. Lotus, Crucible, Explosives, pearl sapphire top Sol Ring, one moat force standstill one fairy conclave four flooded strand two island one library three mistress factory two scalding tarn one strip mine three tundra four wasteland and his sideboard has another moat in it among other things
0: mm-hmm. there has been something of an uptick in moats uh relevance online i think as a reaction to the fact that most of you know the, the top four decks are susceptible to well,
1: in this Emrakul with mana drain or whatever, only costs and the maximum amount of cards in the graveyard only costs then seven, right? If you well, have an instant the, land, the maximum artifact, cards, sorcery, even an enchantment, because these standstills and, break and, themselves. And Planeswalker too with Jace, yeah. so it's, it's
0: possible to be reducing Emrakul's cost by seven. You're right. So, down to six, and then that's if nuts. it's any mana drain mana, I mean, yeah, it could be down to as low as a few mana. And then you can,
1: not only do you get uh, your, their opponent's next turn, but this thing is Flying Trample Protection from Instance, so good, oh. good luck dealing with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's not all for Eldritch Moon, too. Again, owing to um, the VSL, if you're watching the playoffs, you, you might have seen Paul Rietzel's Very V-back cool deck. deck. Yeah, well, Samich uh, put up a three-one on the 17th with
1: probably an with, improved version of the deck too. Yeah, very
0: very similar though in concept, right? You're talking about now this is um, this is Samich's list, not uh, Paul's, but he has three priests, two Kataki in the main, four Mausoleum Wanderer, right? There's part of the payoff from Eldritch Moon, four Rattle Change, which we talked about, four Spell Queller, the other half of the equation from Eldritch Moon. Spirited Labyrinth at 4, Thalia at 4, and Thought-Not-Seer, which I found strange, but thought not seer nonetheless. Bolstered by Time Walk, Ancestral, two Null Rods and a Stony Silence plus Chalice and yeah, Void. Wh- and then the mana base is, <laughs> in, I think in support of this thought not seer has four Adarkar Wastes, four Caverns, and four Temples, Eldrazi Temple, which is fun strange, two Caracas, a Strip, three Tundras, and four Wastelands. So spirits is is a thing. Lisa Celia, you were right, and uh, we'll see how much of the metagame it is going forward, though.
1: No, this spirits deck is awesome. Uh, I love, I love that it's another hate bears deck, and and, and you know, I, I, the the mana base is is obviously tweaked because Paul had uh, Sechrome Coast, I think that's what it's called, um, right? Which the fast land. Yeah, which right. I think was defended over the fourth tundra on the grounds that it. Prevents your opponent from playing massacre, <laughs> but but no, I mean this this brings into play like card you like you just said the the, the new Thalia oh I guess it doesn't have the new Thalia, but it does have Spell Queller no, he the and, and Wanderer yeah. Muslim Wanderer so pretty cool deck yeah
0: and uh, and some of our my followers on Twitter have asked me to talk a little bit about
1: my I definitely want decks, I want to ask so you all I, about that uh, I want I
0: got. Uh... 5th slash 8th at the, the Team Series Invitational, and then I just took 4th place at R.I.W. just this last weekend uh, with Tamiyo Spellcaller decks. Uh, the, the Team Series Invitational one was just banned, basically a moat control deck with uh, the How Stone did you Force
1: decide to, to, and, to get and, on that that overall design, or how did you approach that shell?
0: Well, the the primary motivation was to play with new
1: cards at, at the team series invitational,
0: sure. <laughs> right? They were allowing Eldritch Moon uh, with about a week before it was technically legal, so I wanted to do that. I take that opportunity every time I can get it. So I was most attracted to Spell Queller plus Tamiyo, both as individual cards, but also they bolster each other in my in my estimation. So I and I also realized that I wanted to play with Moat because it seemed to synergize both with those two cards and overall with the way that those two cards would position you in the metagame would be as a a slower kind of mid-range control deck and so moat fit pretty naturally into that. So all of those things combined was the impetus for that deck and plus I was thinking of trying to come up with creative ways to to maximize Tamio's plus Mm -hmm. ability because I didn't want to be a tempo deck I didn't want to be like playing mentor and use her minus ability just to get in and kill someone. I wanted to try and ultimate her so I wanted to come up with creatures that would maximize her plus ability. And I realized that Stoneforge Mystic in conjunction with Batterskull represents two creatures by itself. So in theory, you can on curve play Stoneforge and then activate Stoneforge to put down Batterskull and then play Tameo and be attacking slash blocking with both of those creatures. And it was it was nice. gravy the fact that Batterskull has vigilance which means there's a chance you can nice. double up on Tamiya's trigger. Although that, that is never going to happen, when, you know, realistically. So that was that was kind of the... All of that was the, my mindset, putting that deck together. And uh, it worked out pretty well. I was very pleased with it. In fact, I think I would have done even better than 5th than through 8th in that event if I hadn't gotten really railed by Jake Hilty in his, his new Thalia deck. Because in the top 8, he played... In game 1, he played um, Turn 1, Thought Not Seer. Which is took my ancestral, which was pretty devastating. In game two, he played turn one, new Thalia.
1: Oh God, how unfair! Is also, how fair?
0: Which is also pretty devastating. So, I mean,
1: that was, no, that's that was unusual. Hardly, but I was too.
0: also, I was also pleased at the same time that the, the new Thalia was good. How did he cast to, it? Because I think she's really, yeah. Well, oh boy, I don't remember if it was Lotus or if it was just Mox Ancient yeah. Tomb. I'm sorry, I can't recall. I think it was Mox Ancient Tomb in game two. Yeah. it might have been two Mox, and I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. He played a lot of accelerants in the first, in turn one. What spells did you spell,
1: you spell queller on over the course of the day? Oh, a, a, a little bit of everything.
0: I mean, I used it on removal. I remember it spell coloring a plow. I used it on some creatures, which is felt really good. I mean, I played against Eldrazi, and I used it on um, uh, Athalia at one point. It was uh, it was just pretty universally effective. I, I nice. found Quiller to be great. I mean, it was it was good in counter battles. I remember using it on Mental Misstep, and yeah, it was just it was just pretty valuable. I really liked it, and it fit nicely into the curve of that deck. The curve was a little high, unfortunately. I I was also taking some inspiration from
1: Josh uh, Portucheck. Yes. Uh,
0: Addison's Angel deck. And you had I, you I had you had his draw bugs.
1: engine in there. Like two facts and. Yeah. That's
0: right. I didn't end up using much of the construction of his deck other than the the fact that he had Factor Fiction in that. And at the time, I just I just wanted some kind of potent draw effect that wasn't more Planeswalkers. And I found that Factor Fiction was very hard to maximize in the list I huh. had put together. I think ultimately that that was a mistake. Because they, they did just sit in my hands and I had kind of a log jam at four mana. So... This past weekend at R.I.W., I took a little bit of a different approach. I added black into the deck, added some Deathrite Shamans, and lowered the curve a great deal because now my four-color version I played this past weekend had three preordains and three go How did that work? And it worked, I think, even better. I, I also... I, I wanted to have a good haymaker against Mentor, so at the Invitational, I played Consecrated Sphinx because I wanted something that they just had to answer or lose. But I found that... Since the curve was so high, I wanted to lower the curve, and that meant that as soon as I put black, I could put Notion nice. Thief in that spot.
1: Even better <laughs> but, for a menispell. So as well. Notion
0: Thief became, yeah, became my haymaker against Gush. But as soon as I added black, I started researching other control lists, and I saw some. I'm sorry, I, I can't tell who played it, but it's a very Matt Murray kind of card, and that was uh. Cylindard I do not know that one. Death. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't because it hasn't received much publicity in Vintage. But Sylomgar the Drifting Death is the original Sylomgar, right, uh, before Dragonlord Sylomgar. It's six mana. It's four blue-black. So that's a lot. It's a curve-topper, right? But it's flying in hex-proof. So unlike the Consecrated Sphinx, which, you know, just you, is an awful trade with the plow, this one can't be plowed. In fact, it can't be removed by much other than other than the Supreme Verdict it's a three seven on top of all that so it blocks everything in the format within reason that not tinkered out and even some things that are and it says whenever a dragon you control attacks creatures defending player control get minus one minus one until the turn so it plays cleanup for pyromancer pyromancer tokens unflipped delvers and monks without prowess And I I found that it was just kind of a nice curve topper that I could reliably get into play and didn't have to worry about it getting plowed. (laughs) And also it has hex proof so it's hard for the Eldrazi decks to interact with. It blocks all their creatures on a one-for-one basis. They can't blink it with Displacer and they can't attack into it with Thalia's, big or small, or Displacers. And so the only way they really get around it is if they're mobbing you and then my deck had access to... Post sideboard to, to two moats and um, and supreme verdict.
1: How did that Someone's work for take... you? How did that work for you?
0: It worked very well. I, I, in fact, I played against Jake Odrazi in at RIW and specifically killed him with Dragonlord or with Silongar the Drifting flying over a moat. <laughs> it was beautiful.
1: That sounds like you had a really a really good time.
0: I did. And at the Team Series Invitational, I also got uh, uh, Eric Caffrey playing playing Odrazi to scoop to moat. With Thalia behind it, it was pretty cool. I really have enjoyed Thalia, and I played against uh, Blue Red Delver, Blue Red White Delver, which is less popular these days, and I, and I think I know why. Because the the fact that I had these this particular combination of tools between Moat and Silingar and Notion Thief and this Thalia meant that they're just they're just way too many haymakers basically for them to answer in this list. And that's one of the reasons why I really liked it. So overall, I believe that the new Tamio is is playable, but it's really hard to play more than one in a list. And I went down to one for this last event. I really believe that spell is nice. the real deal, and uh, I'm just a big fan of multicolor control decks. You know, multicolor con- metagame decks also, and that's that's never going to go. And it sounds
1: away. like conspiracy <laughs> gives more tools for those decks as well. So,
0: well, yeah, I mean, cards like this Leovold. And Kaya and uh, I mean you know, Sank the, the prelate is not a, a control card necessarily, but yeah, Kaya and Leovold are really tailor made for that kind of deck. And they're ready too if if uh, you get if you go the Grixis route. So I think this set is is just primed with more awesome metagame position cards. And Wizards really wants us to play three and four mana spells in vintage. And so far I think they're having their wish. I'm excited. It really is. It really is. I'm excited, too. I've been having a blast playing with these Eldritch Moon cards, and these Conspiracy cards have me just as excited, so it's going to be awesome. We we don't, have, we don't have enough time to tease out, I don't think, Eldritch Moon and Conspiracy before Champs. I think there's going to be some cool, new, not necessarily untested, but unproven, maybe, technology at Champs that's going to make evaluating that before, during, and after really cool.
1: I hope so. It wouldn't be Champs if people didn't come into the tournament raring to go. But not only that, bringing some sweet technology to the tournament.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as we said at the top of the hour, uh, we're going to have a preview show for Champs dedicated to what the metagame's like, the latest and greatest. And we'll try to bring as much of the most recent developments to the table as we can leading up to that. So, thank you for listening to episode 56 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We it the next for game!